How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. We're recording now. Well, hello and uh, welcome to Cinema Shock, which is the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. I am one of your hosts, Gary Horn. And I am co-host Justin Bishop. It sounded like you were about to give yourself a further title the way it, that you I thought it. I was going to have more <laughs> to give there, but I didn't. Turns out I'm just uh, I'm always waiting in anticipation for what I'll say next too. <laughs> and I'm writer comedian Mr. Todd A. Davis. When you stare into the podcast, the podcast stares into you through your oh. ears. Oh, stares into your ears. Your <laughs> Thank ear you holes? For jo- yeah, yeah, into your ear holes. Thank you for joining us for our <clears throat> deep dive. On another <laughs> film in our series on Mr. James Cameron, The Man of Tomorrow. Wow. wow. I hate that I laughed at that stupid deep I, I did too. <laughs> <laughs> we all laughed at it. I hate it. <laughs> oh, man. That's the, so, kind of magic, that's the kind of magic I bring to the show, fellas. Thank you, Todd. That's why you're writer, comedian, Todd. Yeah, exactly. That's where that comes from. You don't just get a t- the title of writer, comedian for nothing. Yeah. Available for parties, bar mitzvahs, corporate events. Have you done a bar mitzvah yet? I'm dying to do a bar mitzvah. That would be so much fun. <laughs> so when he was a kid growing up in uh, Chippewa, James Cameron lived only about a half a mile uh, upstream from Niagara Falls. Uh, and while he was hundreds of miles from the nearest ocean at the time, and he wouldn't actually so put so much as a toe into the ocean until he was a, a teenager when his family moved to California. Uh, but the roar of the water, this is something that people always say about Chippewa. The war of the water is kind of constantly in the background because they're so close to that massive waterfall that you just hear it all the time. It's like, a, oh, wow. it's like background music. Uh, and, and, you know, water and its mysteries proved to be a fascination for the aspiring filmmaker. And, you may remember that, you know, as a kid, James Cameron was a nerd. He was a nerd. We could just say it. He was a nerd. Uh, he was a science <laughs> nerd. He, you know, he was very talented in a lot of ways, uh, even as a kid. But he was he was very good in the sciences. And because he received such high grades in science while he was in school, Cameron was invited to attend a series of lectures just over the U.S. border at a university in Buffalo, New York. And one of those lectures was given by a diver who showed a film of an experiment where he had breathed liquid oxygen. Uh, One of his goals was actually send humans deeper into the oceans. Uh, By breathing liquid rather than air, the diver's body could more easily withstand the changes in pressure. That research didn't get very far. You got to think this is the 1960s at the time. This is a a while back. And it didn't get very far because the diver, they they couldn't quite nail down the right mix uh, of gases. But the, the idea behind it ignited the 16-year-old James Cameron's imagination. And so the next day, he starts writing a short story about an underwater science lab perched on the edge of the Cayman Trough, which is the deepest point in the Caribbean. And in this short story that he wrote, these scientists were testing experimental 
fluid breathing gear. Uh, and they made dives down the wall of the trough going deeper and deeper, but none of them would come back. They would just fail to return every time until finally there's like one diver left and he follows them. You know, he goes through kind of a, a should, should I, or should I not, but he decides he's going to follow them and see what happened. And he does, and he experiences a kind of rapture, ending up in a depth-induced psychosis. This is pretty like heady stuff for a 16-year-old to be writing. Yeah, I was just geez. like, <laughs> I was listening to Lint Biscuit and drawing like pictures of Ren and Stimpy in school, you know, and like this. Uh, uh, James Cameron, let's, I mean, he's probably a lot smarter than any of us. I was, <laughs> yeah. I was in high school replacing my own oxygen with other liquid, but it was alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> I had my fingers crossed, desperately hoping to make it out of high school. <laughs> yeah, that was really what I was doing. I was a nerd. Yeah. So over the years, this story would change a little bit, but the bones of that short story written again by a 16 year old kid fueled by his love of science fiction and his fascination with the water would eventually become a, the screenplay for James Cameron's most grueling and personal film. Uh, the subject of today's episode, which is, of course, The Abyss. It began two years ago in an unfinished nuclear power plant. It became one of the most challenging motion pictures ever made. And on August 9th, the most original adventure of the summer will begin at theaters everywhere. From James Cameron, the writer and director of The Terminator and Aliens, comes the abyss. God, I hate that bitch. Probably shouldn't have married her then, huh? Hang on, gentlemen. Here's a bottomless pit, baby. Two and a half miles straight down. It was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I don't think they mean us any harm. I don't know how I know that. Whatever happens, it's up to us. That guy scares me more than anything that's down there. But we all see what we want to see. Coffee looks and he sees hate and fear. You have to look with better eyes than that. <laughs> was that this the sound of the abyss? Or was that? It's the sound of the abyss. Makes, it's cracking open a beer or a monster. <laughs> when you, when you crack open the abyss, the abyss <laughs> cracks open into you. It's yeah. a, it opens gross. its crack for you. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, I don't like that. Uh, real quick, before we get into the rest of the episode, uh, this is something that we never really do, but we figured maybe this is your first time listening to Cinema Shock, in which case, uh, thanks, welcome. Uh, but we do take deep dives into these films, and to do so, we can't skirt around story points. So we're we're going to do this with the assumption that you've watched the movie. And we do encourage you to watch the movie along with us because otherwise we're going to spoil the shit out of it for you. <laughs> That's just, there's no way, there's really no way around it as detailed as we get on the uh, on the production side of things here. They get wet. But what? See, there you go. That was, that was the spoiler. Uh, yeah, that is <laughs> nice. a spoiler. So James Cameron, this, a little bit of this is going to be some background information. So if you've listened to the last couple episodes of this series, you may have heard a little bit of this, but uh, James Cameron and Gail N. Hurd, uh, his producer, they had gotten married just before Aliens went into production, but because of the filming schedule, they didn't have the chance to go on a proper honeymoon until after that movie came out. So after Aliens was released, the couple headed to the south of France, but when they got there, there were all, so many like European tourists there. When they arrived, that they uh, they changed their plans and flew out to the Cayman Islands. Must be nice to just like 
land in Europe and go, nah, let's just go to the Cayman Islands. Forget this. <laughs> uh, the, the aliens money is, is doing them well, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so they went to the Cayman Islands where they chartered a boat and spent their honeymoon scuba diving and exploring. And this is all happening just miles from where Cameron had set that short story that he'd written as a teenager. It's in that same area. So when they returned from their honeymoon, Cameron's kind of deciding what he wants to do next. He's, he's in a kind of a sweet spot where he can kind of work on whatever he wants. Kind of same thing happened after the Terminator, but even more so after Aliens because it was such a big hit. Uh, so he started starts kind of brainstorming ideas, trying to decide what his follow-up's going to be. And at the same time, Heard, she actually signed on to produce her first non-Cameron movie since her days working with Roger Corman. Uh, it ended up being a thriller starring James Caan and Mandy Patinkin called Alien Nation. You guys remember mm-hmm. Alien Nation? I do vaguely remember that. I heads. mostly remember the TV show that, yeah. that came after than the than the original movie, but I don't remember much about it. I remember it's kind of a buddy cop movie. Only one of the cops happens to be an alien, yeah. <laughs> something like that. You know, yeah. I think that it's it's like that. What was that Will Smith movie with orcs that came out on Netflix a few years ago? Bright, oh, bright. It's, yeah, sounds yeah, yeah. like the same story as Bright, but with aliens. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> So it was Heard who actually urged Cameron to work on turning his short story into a screenplay. So uh, Cameron started reworking the idea into a viable treatment for a film. And while the resulting script would be a lot more ambitious than the story he'd written in high school, uh, he made a lot of changes to it. But one of the kind of biggest changes that he made to it was to have his cast of characters, not scientists, but blue collar workers. Uh, His reasoning was that he, you know, he thought that blue collar workers would just be more commercially viable than scientists. It's more relatable. Yeah, they could relate to them a little bit yeah. better than scientists. So he settled on, he battled around a few ideas and then settled on the idea of making his protagonist undersea oil drillers working on a rig called the Deep Core. And undersea oil drilling wasn't really a thing. I mean, it's possible, but it's incredibly expensive and incredibly dangerous and difficult to do. Uh, so while the technology exists to do it, not quite in the way that he puts it in the film. So you could kind of see the abyss as, as existing in a near future kind of environment you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or something like that is happening more regularly but it's you know it's believable i think there's definitely i think if they were going to do a sequel to this it'd be kind of fun to see like a abyss mashed up with there will be blood you know just because i wanted to hear ed harris be like (laughs) i don't know why your brain doesn't automatically go to i'm sorry i stepped all over your line no 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 i just wanted to hear ed harris say you know the i drink your milkshake line yeah, I <laughs> just wish that somebody had the foresight to have made this same crew, well, who was left of them, be the ones that goes get sent to the asteroid and Armageddon. Yes, that was <laughs> yeah, the other thing right. I was thinking. Yes. <laughs> oh right. my god. Yeah, uh, that's good. Uh, one thing that really struck me this time watching it was how similar the oil rig workers are to the crew of the Nostromo and Ridley Scott's Alien. So, you know, uh, Dan O'Bannon conceived those characters as truckers in space. Uh, You could very well call these like truckers uh, underwater or whatever. Oh, for sure. You know, it's very similar. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the Navy SEALs show up and it's almost like the Marines from Cameron's aliens invaded the like Nostromo. Uh, As I was watching this, I couldn't help but see like the similarities between the two. Uh, The difference here, though, is that the, the aliens in the abyss aren't designed to inspire fear like the xenomorph does uh, they're not hostile they're they're kind of more designed to inspire wonder and awe so he's definitely going in a different direction than alien but the uh, the parallels are certainly there yeah it's definitely there but he you know i read several interviews with him where he talks a little bit about that and just basically saying you know this was conceived right after aliens and why would i just want to make aliens again underwater yeah. uh he was basically saying 
I think an exact quote from here is that I'd done it once. I was happy with it. So why would I repeat that? I wanted to make the definitive monster movie with aliens. And I think I succeeded. I didn't want to challenge my own area. So the abyss was always conceived as being exactly what it is. Yeah. So when he was writing his treatment, James Cameron, ever the nerd, uh, went really heavy on the science part of his science fiction, uh, even rationalizing why the aliens, which he called NTIs, which they mentioned in the movie, it's short for non-terrestrial intelligence, which I it's I would love that term for some reason. I think it's really fun. But he he rationalizes why they live so far below the surface. So the pressure of the depths might be similar to the gravity on on denser planets. And he thought that through, you know, it wasn't just something he threw out there. It was something that he was trying to kind of ground in science. And here's how this is actually from his treatment. This is how Cameron describes the NTIs and his treatment for the abyss. Uh, an extraterrestrial creature, bioluminescent like the deep sea fish. It has four arms and two legs, all long and slender, moving with a slow balletic grace. Its body and limbs are translucent, and it resembles a figure made out of blown glass. The head is refined and strangely anthropomorphic with large eyes that convey a cold, dispassionate wisdom without malice. It is stunningly beautiful. So he's definitely not trying to inspire, like, fear like the like the xenomorph like what gary was saying he's not trying to repeat himself he's trying to do something very very different with these aliens when i was looking up reviews for like uh somebody needs a nap too one of the things like some people were like why were these people so in awe of the ships or whatever when they saw them and besides they look weird but uh they were like you know the the undersea has these same kind of things which you know like we were saying like these bioluminescent things like deep sea fish but he says specifically they when they went in like this hot pink, like neon color that they have now. He said we went for colors that don't occur naturally underwater. Uh, so yeah. he said they actually put a ban on anything red, yellow, magenta. Those are in like coral reef fish. And right. um, the, these wavelengths wouldn't propagate well through water. So it's supposed to give it like an otherworldly thing. So it yeah. would look weird to people that are used to seeing shit like that underwater. But even so, like they're still much further down than, than they would normally go, even as deep sea oil workers. So uh, even if they saw a bioluminescent fish or something, they might be in awe, you know, I, right. I, I watched, actually watched, what's the name of it? The um, one of the James Cameron documentaries where he goes uh, into the Atlantic ocean and they go to some of these places where there are bioluminescent fish. And it's, it's fascinating to look even on a screen, you know, it's like, how do these things exist? You know? So I would be in awe, you know, you don't get, yeah. I, I, I get excited when I see a, a great Dane. I mean, <laughs> you know, put me underwater so would they with, if they saw one that deep, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like Aliens, The Abyss was written to be an ensemble affair with a large cast of character actors taking on the role of the oil rig workers and of the Navy SEALs. But at the heart of that story are two characters, Bud and Lindsay, uh, who are an estranged couple who are forced back into working together. And for the role of Bud, the, which I guess you would consider the, uh, the hero of the film, uh, actors such as Mel Gibson, Dennis Quaid, William Hurt, Harrison Ford, Kurt Russell, and Patrick Swayze's names were all floated. Uh, and I think that any of them could, could about probably been pretty good at it. Uh, but when Ed Harris came in to do uh, a screen test for Bud wearing a motorcycle helmet, kind of as a, uh, as a dive helmet, it was pretty obvious that this was like, this was Bud. This was the guy. Nice. I've grown and to really love 
that fucking guy. Like, especially Harris, after Night Riders. Yeah, yeah, he's then, awesome, dude. Just, like, I, I just uh, that guy's he's so likable. He's, he really is. He's very charismatic. Uh, he's he's very like he's got a look where he is believable as a guy who works on like an oil rig, you yeah. know, like he's got the physique for it. He's he's I mean, he's pretty jacked, you know, and, and but in a way where it doesn't look like he lifts weights, it looks like he just is strong like from doing manual. Pract- labor. It's yeah. Practical yes. muscle. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, uh, and I don't know there, he, there's something very charismatic about Ed Harris. I really love that guy. I would, I, really I always, do. I always think of him from the rock. Yeah, As, of course. Uh, General, yeah. General Hummel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and the, the studio, they actually didn't want Harris, despite being fairly well known at the time, especially after he had played John Glenn and the right stuff, which was a big hit. Uh, but he wasn't what 20th Century Fox considered leading man material. Uh, they were also concerned about his receding hairline, you know, because he doesn't look like a movie star. But Cameron saw this as a trait that added to his everyman appeal and made him more believable as a guy who would work on an oil rig. Uh, but And Cameron did stick to his guns, obviously, as we know. Harris ended up winning the role. And then for the role of Lindsay, the studio threw out names like Jessica Lange, Deborah Winger, Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, which she could have been pretty good in it. She got to do her own version of this later on down the line and Sphere, right? Wasn't she oh, in yeah. Sphere? It was. Uh, uh, it was that. Uh, uh, was it Cyber or Cipher? Or it's um... that Jamie Lee was in. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was like based off a comic, actually. Yeah, yeah it was yeah, based yeah, on yeah, a comic. Yeah. Oh man, oh, what's the name of that? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, yeah. Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio ended up being cast in the role, and she's not exactly like a household name. Uh, she's made Marion. Well, she's yeah, she's made married. She'd, she'd had some big roles. She had just come off back-to-back performances in Brian De Palma's Scarface and Martin Scorsese's The Color of Money with Paul Newman and, and Tom Cruise. So she had done some pretty significant stuff at the time. Although um, after after like this and after Robin Hood, I, I don't I haven't seen her in a lot of stuff, but I didn't really dive into why that is. Or maybe it was a personal choice, you know, uh, she's apparently like in a or was in a TV show for a while. there called. Yeah. Blind spot. She was in the Punisher TV series. There was a Punisher TV series. Well, the Netflix one, right? The Netflix. Oh, one. oh, the Netflix yeah. one. She's yeah. In that? Huh. Um. Yeah. She played Marion James. It says I did. I don't remember this. I don't at remember all. her. <laughs> yeah. I don't, but I'm, yeah. It's been in multiple episodes, though. Apparently, but okay. yeah. Well, she was also in the movie White Sands. If anybody's ever seen I've that, never heard was, of that movie. No, uh, it was. It was right after <laughs> Robin Hood in. You get to see her boobs in a more fun way than you do. Than in here when she's yeah. dead. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, medical emergencies are very sexy. <laughs> that's, that's the pull quote from this episode, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so the relationship between Bud and Lindsay is at the film's heart, and it feels a lot more personal, I think, than what we normally get from a James Cameron script. He's not exactly known for... Uh, highly emotional scripts, except for, I guess, Titanic. But uh, that's because this was, in effect, a a highly personal script for him. Uh, As he was preparing uh, to start on The Abyss, Cameron's marriage to Gail and Heard was actually falling apart. And while he was doing script rewrites and researching underwater film cameras, she's off producing Alien Nation. And each of them kind of retreated into their own separate projects and just kind of drifted apart from what I understand. I I couldn't find a lot of detail. Neither of them have been super open about, you know, what caused them to kind of fall their their marriage to fall apart. To me, it just seems like they just just kind of drifted apart into their work. Yeah, it didn't sound too, you know, nasty or anything. But yeah, like by the by the time that 
he's doing press for this at the end of it. They're already divorced. Yeah, so. they're divorced. I mean, by the time pre-production began, they had already legally separated. Yeah. And so they were in the process of being divorced. But while their personal relationship was in shambles, Cameron still wanted his soon-to-be ex-wife by his side as producer uh, because he respected her. And he, he's like, there's nobody else that I want to like film this insane underwater film. There's nobody else I would want by my side than, than Gail and her because he knew how good she was as a producer and he respected that. So she actually stayed on the film despite the fact that they were in the midst of a divorce for the entire production of the film. Jeez. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So <laughs> having a story about an estranged couple who are forced to work together, you know, uh, feels very personal. Although obviously he was working on the script far before any of that started happening, but uh, it, it doesn't feel like that much of a coincidence, you know, but yeah. I mean, there, there are some obvious, like, I mean, pull or, you know, like some, some lines of dialogue they pulled right straight from their life. Like when Ed Harris yells, fight you bitch and smacks her in the face. Then, you know, I think that was like the day before for them. <laughs> yeah. That's just, that's just James Cameron's regular directing style. I yeah. Right. I thought it's just how he says hello. <laughs> well, and he's he's actually talked about how you how, like, Ed Harris fighting <laughs> bitch. Uh, Cameron actually has talked in interviews afterwards how he's like, yeah, like I wish that I could say that Ed Harris's character in this is a parallel to me, but in truth, like he's a much better level-headed leader than I was at that time. Like wow. he he fully admits it, you know. He's like mm-hmm. I he's like I might have wanted to be Bud, but I was not Bud. So the rest of the uh, crew of the Deep Core oil rig was made up of mainly character actors from New York City. You had uh, Leo Burmester, uh, who's my favorite. He plays Catfish. Uh, Todd Graff plays Hippie. Uh, John Bedford Loy. Kimberly Scott, who plays One Night. Uh, they're all great. I love them. Uh, and I love that you don't, they're not, there's not a lot of like, recognizable faces and it makes them seem more realistic and uh about a month before shooting began they all underwent diving training together with the goal of getting them to work together as a team in real life before they had to do it in front of the camera so they they all they could have all learned to dive obviously on their own but cameron wanted them to work as a team the exception was ed harris because ed harris um was a late hire so he actually trained to dive while on the set of another movie that he was shooting and then came and joined them afterwards, which is also kind of crazy to me. So for the villain of the piece, Cameron cast his old buddy, Michael Bean. So in a very different role, I think we talked about it on our aliens episode, how Michael Bean outside of like Terminator and aliens, he's almost always cast as villains. Uh, Mm. But James Cameron started that it's his fault. He's uh, it's Michael Bean's fault too, for being so good at being a bad guy because he's very good (laughs) at being a bad guy. I think. Well, and I said it last episode, I think, where I was like, well, Cameron finally realizes that, this one that, yeah that he's got yeah. one but because he i mean even when he first comes in on this one i, I still something about him I, I really liked him but he's, he's, he's good at like once he starts losing his mind dude he's yeah he's very he, i mean he plays an asshole very well in this movie uh you love to that, hate him and that mustache really helps that mustache goes a long way <laughs> uh, uh, he but, said he said that he uh in one of the interviews somebody asked him like, how does it feel being Michael Bean's personal employer? And uh, he said, is, is it this, uh, uh, is it that unusual? I like working with key actors. If Martin Scorsese always uses Robert De Niro, why can't I use Michael? Especially we work so well together. I worked with Michael again because I was able to give him a part totally opposite of anything he'd done before. Uh, and Bean had actually read an earlier version of the script and 
he had talked Cameron into adding the detail that Lieutenant Coffey was suffering from uh, the high pressure nervous syndrome, you know, as an explanation for him becoming increasingly unhinged. I guess in the script as originally written, it was just like he started kind of being gradually more and more of, a, of an asshole. But it was Michael Bean who suggested that they give this like scientific explanation for it. That wasn't James Cameron's idea. Yeah. So he and three other actors who were cast as the other SEALs, they all underwent their own training uh, to help them be convincing as soldiers. So they're training separately from the rest of the cast. And that's also purposeful because he wanted them to not only feel to, like, like they work together as a team and as, you know, believable soldiers, but also they, they wanted to not feel connected to the rest of the cast because they are you know they have an antagonistic relationship so you see this a lot on movies but i, I always find it very interesting it is interesting i don't know how it how you're supposed to accept that a crew doesn't get automatically curious about the guy when he gets so increasingly sweaty throughout the movie <laughs> and i uh, and i don't trust anybody who sweats that much i just no. don't like jason no, siegel he always looks sweaty and i think he's a villain like at all times there's something i don't trust about him <laughs> that sweaty bastard <laughs> he just looks like he he just looks like he's wet all the time and i don't know why that is and um, not in a good way <laughs> so uh todd tell us what what did your what did your deep dive into the trek universe turn up on this one well uh as we ask every week who am I tracking with? We got a couple folks here. I'm going to start actually with uh, Deborah Everton, the costume designer. Yeah, she so actually. No, no, does that mean we don't have any cast? Because normally you only go into someone like costume design if there's no cast. I'm just I'm I'm well, the reason I'm covering her is because I feel I overlooked her. OK, uh, because she was also the she also was the costume supervisor in the Terminator. Okay. All right. So she also was the uh, costume designer in Star Trek First Contact, 1996, directed by Jonathan Frakes. And then we've got uh, Mr. Darren Doctorman, who plays a news reporter here. And uh, he's got a couple things. He's like miscast. His name's Doctorman. He's the news reporter. <laughs> he was in Star Trek The Motion Picture, uh, the 2001 director's edition. He was in Star Trek Phase 2, credited as uh, main title sequence for four episodes, animator for two episodes, modeler for two episodes, opening title sequence for two episodes, USS Enterprise model and space effects for one episode, visual effects for one episode, series consultant for one episode, and he played Claudius Marcus in Season 1, Episode 12, Bread and Savagery. <gasps> wow. Well, I feel like for some weird reason, I'm always going to remember that a guy named Doctorman is in a lot of yeah. Doctorman, yeah, Dar and Darren Doctorman, like Darren it's got the alliteration as well. Wow. Um, wow. He was also in uh, the the pilot episode of Star Trek Voyager from 1995, wow. and uh, he did props. Uh, he was the prop concept artist for Star Trek Beyond in 2016. So he's an and actor and like a props guy. It sounds yeah, like yeah, an exactly. guy. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, he also did. He was also the concept artist for ten episodes on Star Trek: Picard. Wow. Uh, now we've already mentioned uh, Joe Farrago as the Anchorman, but he also played Anchorman in Terminator. Uh, but he did some stunts on Star Trek: Six, the Unde Undiscovered Country, in 1991. And then, last but not least, Mr. Ken Jenkins, aka Dr. Bob Kelso from Scrubs, yeah, as, uh, Gerard Kirkhill. He was in. He's Star in Star Trek. Trek? Yeah, Star Trek Next Generation Season 3, Episode 1, Evolution from wow. 1989. Dr. As, as Dr. Paul jerk. Stubbs. Yeah, oh, he just plays doctors, but Doctorman never played a doctor. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Uh, Kelso. And, that, and that's everybody in Star Trek. Bah, Thank you, Todd. Bah, bah. There it is. <laughs> so as you may remember from the first episode in the series, if you listened to that Terminator episode, and if you uh, made it through the three and a half hours or whatever that it lasted, <laughs> James Cameron started taking diving lessons as a teenager. And it's something that he continued to do into adulthood, pushing it further and further, far beyond what one might consider a hobby, you know, like he was pretty obsessive about it. It was a big part of his life. Uh, and as many of our listeners might already know, in the 12 years between Titanic and Avatar, Cameron directed uh, and starred in several underwater documentaries. And in 2012, he became the first person to do a solo descent to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, which is the deepest part of Earth's ocean, 36,000 feet below the surface of the water. Uh, for those keeping score, that's nearly seven miles below the surface of the water. Uh, nobody had ever done that by themselves before. In fact, the, la the last time and the only other time, actually, that someone had attempted to go to the bottom of the Mariana Trench was in 1960. And that time, the submersible had two passengers in it, not just one. Uh, the plexiglass windows uh, of their submersible cracked under the pressure. Uh, and the two men spent only 20 minutes on the ocean floor before turning back. And then no one even attempted the dive again for more than half a century when Cameron did so in a submersible that he actually helped design and build along with his engineering team, which includes his brother, Mike, uh, was just, which was a project that took seven years. Wow. And there's a documentary about this, too. It's called Deep Sea Challenge. He did not direct that one, but there is a documentary about his descent to the Mariana Trench that I, I hope to watch here soon. Um, and if you're wondering about the timeline, by the way, 2012 was when that dive took place. He had been spent seven years working on this project. That means that while he was working on this, he was simultaneously reinventing 3D technology for Avatar. He's doing this stuff. It's <laughs> all happening at the same time. Isn't that wild? Overachiever. Yeah. So the, the question is, though, why did Cameron do this? You know, why did he spend years of his life working on something like this? I mean, he's a filmmaker, but why, why, why are you working so obsessively for almost a decade on trying to go to the deepest part of the ocean by yourself? Uh, later on, he said in an, in an interview, uh, quote, I like doing things I know others can't. And that's been something of a motto for Cameron for his whole career, doing things that others can't do or uh, things that other people just won't do or aren't crazy enough to do or aren't willing to put in the effort to like make happen when somebody says that they're impossible. So when it came time to film The Abyss, he really put those words into practice. To be fair, uh, just so we pointed out, I mean, as a side note, this is also uh, essentially the basis for Justin's mom's pornographic, but very brave OnlyFans account. Doing things others can't or things others won't do. <laughs> <laughs> Doing things other people won't put in the effort to try to do. <laughs> anyway, with the abyss. Cameron planned on shooting with water in ways that nobody else had attempted before. He, he wanted to photograph real actors in an underwater soundstage complete with sets, lights, and, and recording sound. And nobody had ever done this before at all because it's insane. But as we know so well about Cameron even already, you know, three episodes in, someone telling him that he can't or shouldn't do something is only going to motivate him to do it even more because he wants to prove that it's possible. He's a non-paralyzed John Locke. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Don't you tell me what I can't do. Uh, I mean, remember, he had been told not to make Aliens. It was a major success. And during the shooting of that film, even Stan Winston was unsure if his idea for a 14-foot-tall alien queen puppet would work. And it did. You know, he, he, uh, he pitched the Terminator 
uh, idea to his agent. His agent didn't believe him, so he fired his agent and made it without him. <laughs> so Cameron at this time is le- learning to listen to his instincts rather than the prevailing wisdom about how movies should be made. So in the past, underwater scenes in movies had usually been shot on a soundstage using the dry for wet technique, which is where the director creates the illusion of a scene being underwater through the use of smoke and slow motion photography. Uh, Either that or they would use stunt divers to stand in for the actors uh, for scenes shot in deep water. Then they would cut in shots of the actual actors in close up. They were usually filmed like in a swimming pool somewhere, somewhere safe. If there was any other movie that came anywhere close to having the sheer amount of underwater photography as Cameron was hoping for, it was the 1977 film The Deep, starring Nick Nolte, Jacqueline Bissett, and Robert Shaw. And it was based on a novel by Peter Benchley, the guy who wrote Jaws, and The the Deep is very much just a shameless attempt to cash in on the popularity of Jaws, which had come out two years earlier. And of course, the casting of Robert Shaw would probably clue you in on that. Uh, And it's not like, have you guys ever seen The Deep? It's not a, a great movie. It's not terrible. It's it's not very memorable at I was all. Say, I don't remember it if I've seen yeah. it. Yeah, uh, it's, not, it's not very memorable, but it does have some pretty great underwater photography. And the guy responsible for shooting that underwater photography was a guy named Al Giddings. Now, Giddings is a fun character in this story, and he's going to be probably part of Cameron's story for quite a few years after this. I'm sure we'll mention him on other episodes. Uh, but he's this big, like, burly six foot two 240 pound ex-spear fisherman competitive swimmer Uh, he had turned his love of the sea into a career as the go-to guy for underwater cinematography Uh, he'd filmed at this point he'd already filmed several award-winning underwater nature documentaries and he had started to develop a reputation as a modern day Jacques Cousteau so this guy, he's this is a guy after Cameron's own heart, you know, like Cameron, he had a mind for engineering, uh, the filming equipment that he had used on the deep were of his own design. You know, he's, he's very, very similar to Cameron in that way. Plus he's this big burly man's man. Uh, and, you know, we, we know Cameron likes those kind of dudes and Cameron is one of those type of dudes. Uh, this guy who his athleticism actually helped during these underwater, these grueling underwater shoots, because it's very very hard on your body to be underwater for that long. And the two got along really well when uh, when Cameron flew out to meet him. And it wouldn't take long before he was hired as the Abyss's underwater director of photography. So he's responsible for everything being shot underwater. Man, I was looking him up just now just to see what he looks like because I was picturing like Quint in my mind or something. No, he's pretty clean cut. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's I a big ready dude. For it, but... like, uh, yeah. Cameron goes into the bowl. Bowl goes into the reactor. <laughs> <laughs> Abyss is in the reactor. Yeah, they, they interview him a good bit on the um, on the uh, the Abyss making of documentary. So Cameron had never had any intention of shooting any of this on the open ocean, uh, or at least very little. There's some model work of the the boat, you know, that they they launch off of. Uh, mm-hmm. That was a that was a miniature, by the way. It's like still like a forty foot long miniature, but it was a miniature shot on the ocean. But most of this, he had not planned on shooting in the actual ocean. Hollywood had kind of learned its lesson after the difficulties that Steven Spielberg had on Jaws. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard, but Jaws was not an easy movie to shoot. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, yeah, I mean, when you're shooting on the ocean, you have to worry about storms and tides. Uh, and visibility, you know, the, the water's always moving, the sun's always moving in the background. Not to mention sharks that- never stay on their mark. Sharks, they're terrible actors. Uh, (laughs) uh, Not to mention that salt water will corrode all of your equipment. You know, Uh, it's very difficult. It's too dangerous. It's too unpredictable. And most importantly, to the folks writing the checks at the studio, it is far too expensive to shoot on the open ocean. Although that 
craft services at the bottom of the ocean, not as tasty as you might think. Just the crusty crab this year, only yeah, choice. Exactly. So Cameron had instead planned on shooting in a tank, which is you know, an environment that he could control where he would build the set for the deep core and his other underwater sets. And he looked everywhere. He looked all over the world, like in all different countries. And he looked at every tank that was available and none of them were big enough for what he needed. Then he received a call, a phone call from a guy named Earl Owensby. Earl Owensby. I, I wish I could find a lot more information on him than I could because his, his career seems fascinating. He seems like a really interesting person to me. Uh, but he was an actor slash producer known as the drive-in king of the South. Uh, he had uh, begun his career by producing and starring in a movie called Challenge, where he played the lead role, a guy named Frank Challenge, who was a U.S. senator who goes on a roaring rampage of revenge after his family is murdered because he wouldn't Ooh. like he wouldn't like go along with this. Uh, I think they're called like the syndicate or something, you know, and he didn't want to. He didn't want to be in their pocket, so he didn't go along with them, and they murdered his family, you know, uh, one of those kind of movies. Wow. Uh, and it actually had a sequel, Challenge, in its sequel, The Brass Wing, The Brass Ring. They were the first films produced by the production company that Owensby had recently founded called, fittingly, Earl Owensby Studios. So for the first Clever. six or so years that they existed, every film that EO Studios produced starred Owensby. Uh, that was his career. He just made his own movies, you know. Uh, but then in 1980, they began to branch out. Uh, their first non-Owensby movie went to, uh, or the first non-Owensby starring role went to David Allen Coe. <laughs> in a movie called Lady Grey, which right. I had no idea that David Allen Coe ever acted. <laughs> I had so, no idea. So it's just, as I'm looking over the notes, it just, it, you know, occurs to me. So Earl Owensby was in charge of Earl Owensby Studios, yes. also known as EO. And yeah. so he was in charge. So does that make him Captain EO? I knew exactly where you were going with that. <laughs> Sorry. No, I appreciate I appreciate it, Todd. <laughs> no, no, no. I should have left that one up, up up in the old brain bucket. I apologize. I'm better than that. I'm better than hey, that. Hey, that was a that's a Francis Ford Coppola film. Yeah. Hey, Technically. You know what? I'm gonna switch sides and say, yeah, of course I'll make that joke. <laughs> now that I know it's got Coppola connection. Right, you know, that's, that's true cinema. Yeah. So Owensby continued to produce successful films mostly low budget action movies for the grindhouse circuit you know he's very successful doing that and then in 1987 he was ready to expand his small burgeoning movie empire just a little bit more uh, and by doing so to do so he he purchased a never completed cherokee nuclear power plant just outside the big city of gaffney south carolina <laughs> right so under the beach Yep. Right under the peachoid. So listeners of the show, if you don't know, um, we're based in South Carolina. We're about an hour's drive from Gaffney, probably. Yeah. Uh, and I had no idea that there was an unfinished nuclear power plant there. Uh, I had no idea there was a movie studio there. <laughs> Gaffney isn't really much of a town. It's mostly known for an outlet mall and a giant yeah. water tower that's shaped like a peach that looks like a giant butt on the side of the interstate. Uh, yeah. if, you, <laughs> if, you, if you do know Gaffney and you don't live in this area, it's because you saw it on House of Cards where it makes an appearance early on in the series where Kevin Spacey's out there under the peach oil. I want to go find this place, guys. 
I do too. I think we might need to do a <laughs> cinema shock uh, field trip. I really want. I don't know if it's. I don't think it's in use anymore as a movie studio. But I would really like to go find that place. It's. I think, I think that would be a nice big. way to cap off our James Cameron series. Yeah, Gaffney's yeah, not they, very big, and it can't be hard to find a nuclear reactor. I found um, a Reddit where someone uh, had taken pictures. Like in 2014 was the yeah. most recent, and somebody in the Reddit thread said all the stuff had been. Uh, taken down in the past couple of years or so oh, really but um, yeah like as far as the abyss sets or whatever because i was totally like man, wh- why have we not done this 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 should be a thing we go look at <laughs> yeah for real i mean i could not believe i i've seen this movie uh you know quite a few times and i had no idea that it was filmed an hour from where i'm sitting you know mm-hmm. and, and i mean obviously that for a lot of people i mean we live two hours from atlanta and the marvel movies are filmed there it's not a big deal but it's atlanta it's like a big city you know yeah. of course they're, they're filming movies there but gaffney gaffney south carolina <laughs> like that that really shocked me because uh gaffney is just a, a nothing little berg that literally just has a an outlet mall at it <laughs> and a fats <laughs> cafe and right underneath the the peach exactly <laughs> uh but the, the cherokee nuclear power plant out there was an energy project that was started by duke energy in the early 1970s but construction on the three reactor plant was stalled due to economic problems and by the early 1980s uh it was abandoned so earl owensby bought the empty plant with the plan to turn it into an independent movie studio and so he contacted Cameron because he thought the plant's large rectangular turbine pits might just be the perfect location for Cameron to build his underwater sets. So Cameron flies out to South Carolina with Giddings at his side and Owensby kind of gives him the tour around the site. And uh, Cameron's pretty impressed with what he saw, or at least he saw the, you know, he, the potential in what he saw. He, he saw that it could you know make it for a pretty good location. Uh, and he, he, he liked the turbine pits that Owens had kind of, that's why he brought him out here to show him these big turbine pits. Uh, Cameron liked the, he, he saw the potential in those turbine pits, but while he was touring the facilities, he looked off in the distance. And this is like, when I say the distance, it's like a mile away, you know, these nuclear facilities are enormous. Uh, and he sees this giant concrete bowl. And this enormous bowl was supposed to have been the nuclear reactor's containment vessel. So they put the reactor in, it's like, you know, eight feet of concrete. It's, it's, it, once it's completed, it's gas um, sealed so that nothing from the reactor gets into the outside world, you know. And it had only been half finished before the project was abandoned. So it wasn't, it was a, a you know, half of a sphere, essentially. So it's just a bowl. And uh, it was 240 feet in diameter with 80 foot walls and no entrance. They're looking at it, and and by the way, the day that they're they're touring this facility, it's just like it's like it is outside right now. It's just howling rain and wind, and it's like it's not not a nice day. And but they're you know Cameron is not going to let that stop him. He he starts walking towards this reactor or this this containment vessel, and there's a giant crane next to it, which was the crane they were using to construct it. They had just I guess when they abandoned the project, they abandoned all the equipment there too. So. Cameron and Giddings climbed to the top of this crane about 110 feet in the air. So they're actually over the bowl uh, in the howling wind and rain so that they could get, kind of get a better look at it. And they're looking down at this enormous concrete bowl that's filled with, you know, a decade's worth of dirty brown rainwater. And Cameron is inspired. Uh, those 
kind of engineering gears start turning in his brain. He, he starts seeing what he could do with this. So him and Giddings, they're at the top of this crane and they start talking about it, started to, to discuss like how they could build the deep corset here, how they could build the cliff face that it was, you know, on the edge of the abyss, all in this giant tank because it's that big. And by the time they climbed back down the ladder off of that crane, they, they had a plan in place for what they wanted to do. But it wasn't going to be easy. This was going to be more than just the world's largest underwater set. It was going to be a feat of industrial engineering that would involve pouring thousands of pounds of industrial concrete, installing these huge filtration systems and pumps, and a row of 20,000 heaters to warm the seven and a half million gallons of water that the tank would hold. Uh, and this is just one of the many innovative and sort of insane solutions that Cameron was going to have to have in order to realize his vision for the abyss. Uh, a lot of the equipment that he was going to need to pull, pull it off, like literally just did not exist yet. But one of the things he wanted to do was he wanted to, he wanted to be able to clearly see the actors faces in the underwater scenes. Uh, because what's the point of training all your actors to dive if all you're going to see are, you know, their eyes and, you know, a normal dive suit you all you see are the eyes and then you've got the regulator over the mouth so you can't really see anything so he brought in ron cobb remember ron cobb we talked about him on uh aliens and alien he was one of one of dan o'bannon's guys uh the production designer so cobb comes in and designs a concept for a dive helmet with a full clear faceplate so you can see the, the actor's entire face and then th that design was manufactured by a company called western space and marine but Cameron didn't want to just see the actors' faces. He also wanted to hear their voices. And he wanted to do it by recording their dialogue in real time, not in ADR. And that meant that he had to figure out a way to record their dialogue while they were underwater. You can't exactly, like, hold a boom mic over their head. Right. <laughs> so, of course, you know, as we said, a typical diving regulator fits into a driver's mouth, which makes it a little bit difficult to talk. Uh, so Western Space and Marine built the regulator into the side of the helmet that Cobb had designed, allowing fresh air to cycle through the helmet as needed without a mouthpiece. You can see it in the movie. It's like to it's on their right. It's like to the side and you can see the bubbles like popping out of it as they talk. And WSM also incorporated microphones as uh, the same kind of that were used in fighter aircraft helmets for pilots to talk to each other. They put those inside of the helmets as well so that they could record the dialogue. The, the helmets did make a pretty bad noise as air was coming out. This like really annoying. I don't even know how to describe it. It just goes like, like every time they talk and they actually had to edit that out in post because it was so irritating to listen to every time that somebody <laughs> talked. Yeah. They, they talk a lot in some, some interviews too, with uh, about how he pushes the envelope on all these things. Like he always tries to think of, new and industrious ways of accomplishing things but uh, he talks that that particular one is one he says uh uh he says that that may be true but you don't always get the equivalent value on screen for going the extra miles like i try to do and uh that example was a specific one he gave he says uh you know we had we had actors in diving suits speaking dialogue being recorded live underwater the audience doesn't perceive that as outstanding, though, because we've seen 20 years of helmet movies and it's always faked. It doesn't even occur to people it was done differently with fabulous equipment, and it may not seem that remarkable to anybody else. But it was. But uh, he says we didn't really, you know, get the showmanship value out of it as much as the difficulty level. But well, yeah, I mean, it, it was it worth the difficulty? Probably not. I mean, they could have recorded the dialogue in ADR and, and just the actors would have still been speaking on set. So you still would have got the bubbles. 
you know, uh, and the yeah. audience wouldn't have known otherwise. <laughs> yeah. Think. Yeah. They wouldn't have. He said though, they tried to adopt this motif of do everything as realistically as possible. Yeah. I mean, the, the craziest one to me was, you know, just in that tank, the, the descent that Ed Harris has to do into the abyss. I mean, that was straight up built along the, up the wall like a 50 yeah. foot drop and yeah. it was the only thing ed harris actually didn't do in the movie they had like another trained diver actually do the drop but i yeah. mean that's a legitimately a dude just like dropping 50 feet in the water you know like it's just i don't know insane they said there was like special training though that it could like fuck with your inner ear and all kinds oh, of yeah. stuff so going down that quickly yeah yeah so Cameron actually had his own uh, helmet made as well, the, the same as what the actors were wearing so that he could direct from underwater. And they created a, uh, an underwater PA system so that Cameron and only Cameron could be heard by the casting crew. So there's an underwater PA system connected to his microphone, but nobody else's microphone were connected to it. So he would have to direct actors by talking to this and they would have to signal back to him either like with hand signals or uh, you know him reading lips. In fact, when they when they did um, instead of, you know the slate that they do at the beginning of each take, that's to the the way the reason you click that down is to get a sync between sound and 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 picture to make right. sure it's it's the same. So you, obviously you can't really do that underwater. So they would take the slate and just like bonk it on their head so that the microphone inside of their helmet would pick it up and it, it, it works. But it looked really <laughs> silly uh, if you look at the behind the scenes footage because they'll be about to do this like intense scene and but it starts off with them going bonk and then the actors <laughs> would have to like giggle for a, a little bit like you know every single time before they got into the scene just to like get it out of their system because it was so such a goofy way to start your scene <laughs> uh, another practical issue when it came to shooting underwater was the lighting so normally when you're shooting underwater uh, you really just have to hope that you've got enough light for an exposure if you're shooting like in real uh, a real environment uh, and ambient lighting, which is what's typically you, know, you typically see in a film, wouldn't really work for the abyss because their underwater sequences were shot and they were supposed to be in the blackest the blackest depths of the ocean where no natural light would penetrate. So all the lighting had to come from practical sources. They had to come from like the deep core, the subs, or from the divers themselves. So which is pretty difficult to do, uh, you know, uh, the, you couldn't just have like light off screen that couldn't be explained because it would kill the effect of them being so far underwater. So Cameron sent his friend, John Bruno, who was a, uh, John Bruno was a visual effects artist. He had helped create the ghost and poltergeist and ghostbusters. And he sends them down to the Cayman islands, uh, uh, out where Cameron's short story had been set, you know, uh, with some still cameras and a couple submarines and Bruno dived down 700 feet below the surface to take photos of the blue black undersea world those that area where there there's not much light and those images would serve as inspiration for Cameron and Michael Solomon uh, who by this time had, had been hired as the uh, the director of photography on land or any of the dry scenes and he was also responsible for supervising the underwater lighting because you know Al Giddings He's the director of photography underwater, but he was mostly used to shooting documentary style, not like lighting a scene. So Michael Solomon was in charge of, you know, kind of coordinating the lighting on the underwater sequences as well, even though he wasn't physically ever under the water shooting because that wasn't his expertise. At this point, they know what they want the underwater scenes to look like, but they had to also get hundreds of lights that were bright enough to light these enormous sets uh, and they were also safe enough to stick in a giant bowl of water with 30 or so people walking around in it uh, michael bean in some interviews talks about that he's like yeah i was always taught as a kid not to like get the, the the lamp near the water and i'm being asked to like 
jump in a giant pool that's filled with lights. <laughs> uh, most of the lights are the lights that are like normally used for underwater filming weren't powerful enough for what they needed. Uh, the engineers at a company called Hydro Image uh, in, invented something for this. Uh, it, it was a powerful 1200 watt metal halide lamp called the CPAR. So they invented this just for the abyss, you know, and the CPAR would go on to be used in a ton of other movies, including Michael Bay's Armageddon, uh, which is a second shout out that movie's already gotten this time. I just can't, can't wait for our further viewing segment later. Um, and, and it also got used in National Geographic nature films. It's also the only underwater lighting that NASA allows in their indoor pool in Houston, which is where they train astronauts in weightlessness. But it was invented for the abyss. Like, nice. and this is one of several pieces of equipment that were invented specifically for this film. All right, so that's another problem solved, uh, which just means that that's a check off the list, and we're on to the next problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the next problem was that uh, because they were shooting not in the actual ocean, they were shooting in a tank. Um, well, first of all, water—you uh, guys may know—water is reflective. Um, so, <laughs> I've heard I've heard that about water. Yeah, yeah. So once the tank is filled, because it's in a tank and, and not the ocean, it's completely still across the top right there's no like waves or anything it's completely still and that creates a mirror on the underside of the underside of the surface so like you know the actors would look up and they would just see a reflection of themselves which would also kill the illusion of them being thousands of miles or thousands of feet rather underwater so they were trying to figure out a way to do this or like oh we could put a tarp on it or you know they're they're batting around ideas on how to fix this and the solution came from al giddings who he tested his idea in his own swimming pool. And basically he bought a bunch of black propylene beads. They were, they're tiny about the size of BBs and he built a floating grid to hold them all on the surface of the water. And then they just dumped all these beads on the water. Cause they're they're uh, They float from below. They block out all of the light. It just creates this like black field over the top, but they also, because of their beads, if there was an emergency, divers could burst through to the surface of the water without them. Although the actors did complain about finding like these tiny beads and like their ears and uh, various other orifices mm. for, oh. for, for like weeks <laughs> after shooting. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so overcoming all of these technical hurdles was kind of fun for Cameron, at least early on, you know, cause he's the kind of guy, he's got the engineer bringing, he, he likes to find solutions to problems and that's what they're doing. You know, they're finding solutions. Uh, he always loved hands-on science. It gave them an opportunity to kind of flex those muscles. Uh, he also enlisted the help of his brother, Mike, who had, uh, by this time uh, in the mid-late 80s, he had been working as a mechanical engineer for, for quite a few years. And on the abyss, one of Mike's biggest contributions was a device called the Sea Wasp. Uh, because you can't do traditional, like, dolly shots underwater uh, you can't really build a dolly underwater and just roll a camera on it. That's not possible. So, but mm. Cameron wanted a way to move his camera smoothly and quickly inside of the tank uh, to make to make it look like a dolly shot, basically. Uh, and the Sea Wasp was this vehicle that that Mike Cameron created that he invented that could tow two divers, but was also small and nimble enough to rise and descend very easily kind of a, and allow the camera operator to stay on the subject. It's pretty cool to see in motion. Uh, if you look up some of the behind the scenes stuff on the, the abyss, you can see them using this thing and it, it's pretty neat. Uh, Mike Cameron also has a small cameo in the film. He plays the corpse uh, in the uh, submarine that has a live crab crawl out of its mouth. That, <laughs> yeah. That, that's the cameo. Uh. 
that's the cameo that James Cameron gave his brother. And they had to do like, like four or five takes on it. That just feels like somebody <laughs> picking on their little brother. I was going to say, he's still down there waiting for reshoots. So that's what James Cameron <laughs> thinks of his brother. Yeah. <laughs> Funny that of all the people he could have gotten to do that shot, it, it was his little brother. So in April of 1988, the Abyss's art department rolled into Gaffney and they start building the deep core. The turbine pits that Owensby had first showed Cameron became the place where the production would shoot miniatures and subs uh, it became known as B tank, but a tank, you know, the, the, the main tank was the giant concrete bowl where deep core was being built. And a tank was supposed to be ready to shoot by August of that year, but due to engineering delays, it wasn't even close to being finished by then. Uh, Cameron started shooting what he could in B tank and on some of the dry sets. Uh, but by September, deep core still wasn't ready. Once it was done, it was going to take an additional five days just to fill a tank with water. Remember, it's seven and a half million gallons of water. It was going to take five days to fill. Plus time a lot of trips to the grocery store. Yeah. (laughs) Plus plus time to heat and filter it, which it's going to take a long time to heat seven and a half million gallons of water. Todd, you're I just, just cracking up. I'm sorry. I just pictured <laughs> I just pictured some lowly PA like cracking open aquafinas and just like that's what I was another one. <laughs> or like milk jugs. Yeah. <laughs> they were actually they were actually grabbing water from a nearby lake. So this is lake water they're putting in, which is, makes the filtration system even that much more important because mm-hmm. they had to filter it to where it was crystal clear so they could, you know, shoot in it. At any time they had to pee. Cameron's just like, go over there. (laughs) We got a whole, a whole place for that. (laughs) Uh, Cameron got impatient uh, and actually started filling a tank with water while workers were still inside of it. (laughs) Like he he was like, fuck it. We got to go. Let's go. Uh, And so water is slowly rising beneath them. And the crew is standing on these skiffs, painting the set, working day and night to finish it before the whole thing was underwater. You can see pictures of that too. Like there's like, or like uh, little things. I, I think all the, the extras on the DVD or something. I, I can't remember where I saw it, but it's like, you can see them like working while the water is like, they're watching the water level rise yeah. up and they're <laughs> just trying to get done. Cameron's like, I will fucking kill you. Yeah, you I will murder you. Literally. <laughs> you have two choices. You can finish or you can drown. So there were other problems and delays even after construction was complete. Uh, they had thunderstorms. They had pipe ruptures. They had water clarity problems. Uh, when you're working with seven and a half million gallons of water, it can't always be crystal clear all the time. Uh, a tank was it was so big that it actually created its own weather. <laughs> so some days the crew would show up to shoot and it would just be too murky to work with. They couldn't shoot in it. They would have to clear, you know, clarify it. One of the weirder production delays uh, involved some rogue Gaffney goats that wandered in. They wandered into B tank, you know, the turbine pits, and started chewing on equipment and tumble, like jumping on the walls and tumbling off of them, uh, and then pissing and shitting all over the set. <laughs> so, ah, ah, the famous Gaffney goats. Ah, Gaffney say, for goats. those of you who aren't from South Carolina, the Gaffney goats are a local street gang. That's <laughs> <laughs> just what we call people from Gaffney. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the locals. <laughs> yeah. just, uh, we don't call them locals. Yeah, we just call them the Gaffney goats. Uh, y'all making a movie here? And then they just <laughs> they're the townies they just, of Gaffney. Then they just shit on the floor. <laughs> you're not pointing the camera this way right so i can just go ahead and drop a deuce well the good part is is they see goat you know greatest of all time so they take it as a compliment uh, (laughs) it works 
you got and all these problems I'm describing. Remember, this the film hasn't even started shooting yet. Um, <laughs> this is all pre-production. Uh, the shoot itself brought its own set of problems, and there were uh, you know quite a lot of them. Uh, first of all, shooting days averaged 15 to 18 hours every day. Uh, crew members would spend the shoot uh, about 30 feet underwater, and it took a while to get the pH levels in the tank right. Because remember, they were having these water clarity problems, so they would add chlorine, but initially there was too much chlorine, and it started, uh, crew members, their hair started falling out and changing colors, and their skin started burning from the amount of chlorine in it. Didn't really affect the actors, because they were all in these, like, full-body, you know, suits, but... The uh, but some of the crew members were were having it pretty rough. Uh, they would shoot sometimes underwater for up to five hours at a time, and when the cast and crew would emerge from the water, they were shaky and unstable. You know, it's it's hard being under that much water pressure for that long of a time. Mm. Uh, they'd finish shooting, they'd come out, and they would climb into plastic hot tubs that had been set up uh, to you know kind of to the side of the set. And Fox considered the hot tubs to be an indulgence. She, he, they thought that, that they were just like lounging in hot tubs. Like, why did you buy hot tubs for the set? And they gave her, they gave Gail and her some shit about buying them. But once the shoot moved into the fall and winter, those hot tubs became the only place on the set that was warm enough for the crew to eat lunch or hold meetings. Because remember, this is all outdoors. Like this set is outdoors. This tank is outdoors. It's uncovered. Uh, there was a tarp over it at one point. And then there was like a thunderstorm and the tarp ripped. And it was going to take too long. It, the tarp was over it, really, to keep, not to keep them from the weather, but to keep the sunlight out, so mm. that it would you know, increase the darkness. And once that ripped, they kind of decided that it would be too time-consuming and expensive to fix. So cameras just like, well, I guess we're on night shoots now. And the rest of the shoot was at all on nights. They were shooting in the middle of the night, which makes it even more difficult, you know. Yeah. Uh, so the cast and crew grew pretty exhausted and irritable, as you can imagine. A lot of them started coming down with ear and sinus infections. Like people were getting sick. Uh, like it is, it is not a not a fun time. And decompression was also an issue, especially for Cameron and Giddings, who spent more time than anyone else underwater. Uh, at the end of each shooting day, because even under 30 feet of water, that's a considerable amount of water pressure on you. Uh, and at the end of each shooting day, they would have to hang 10 feet under the surface for an hour. They couldn't come all the way out because the pressure change was too much. They had to kind of hover about 10 feet below the surface of the water for an hour just to allow their body to adjust to the change in pressure. And, and not, you know, not one to waste time. Cameron, he wasn't just going to hang there. So he had his crew install a monitor in the underwater control room so that he could actually watch dailies while he's hanging there. And he would have phone calls from like the studio uh, pumped into his helmet so that he could talk while he was hanging there underwater because Cameron's just the kind of guy it seems like who can't sit still you know he's not just gonna yeah. lounge he's not gonna take a nap well and <laughs> nitrogen's a huge part of that too so like even when he went home at night like he was having to put on a breathing mask and like take an aspirin and breathe yeah i think he had to breathe like pure oxygen right yeah, he had to pure, breathe pure oxygen at night so that it would cleanse out the nitrogen that was in his system because he had to go do the same shit for 10 hours the next day yeah it's mm. wild he said, I think they spent, he, he spent like a total of 550 hours in a diving helmet to make the abyss. Uh, that's great. That's insane. God. Yeah. He said, that's <laughs> well beyond all, all that one would associate with this job. And I will never do that again. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's uh, said multiple times that like, would I do it the way I did it? No. Nah, if I were to do it again, probably not. <laughs> but I mean, that's, you kind of think that's, he's spending more time on a daily basis underwater than overwater. If he's spending 12 to 15 hours a day underwater it's it's, it's mm. crazy 
I mean, everything about shooting water under underwater is very difficult, as you can imagine. Uh, the helmets were unwieldy and heavy. They weighed about 40 pounds and they were strapped to their, their like buoyancy vests. So if you, if you took off the helmet, you still had the weight of a 40 pound helmet hanging off of you. Mm. And, and Cameron, who remembers wearing the same helmet, he was also weighted down with an additional 40 pounds of weights that were attached to his waist and ankles so that he could walk around the bottom of the set with a camera say what you will about him. The guy, the guy is, is motivated and he will, he will do whatever it takes to get this movie made. Like he's, he's holding a camera and he's shooting this stuff himself. Him and Giddings are shooting the majority of it. So during the shooting of one scene, actually camera was so absorbed in his work that he didn't realize that he had run out of oxygen, which is a problem. <laughs> so yeah. he, he went to give uh, master Antonio. He was actually trying to give her direction, talking to her through his, you know, the PA system. And he realized he couldn't take a breath. And Al Giddings is under you know, underwater with him, but he's got his back to Cameron and the other crew members that were there were either um, they were either on the surface or they were off in the distance, like putting up uh, you know some lighting and he couldn't get anyone's attention. He's like, uh, he can't speak. He, he's trying to make like hand motions and he, he can't get anyone's attention. Well, he, he, he could speak. He, I mean, he saw it as microphone, but he didn't have any breath to like, you know, be able to get the words out. So he jerks his helmet off. But remember, he's, he's still at the bottom of a seven and a half million gallon tank. He's 35 feet below the surface. Um, and that helmet is still attached to him, that 40 pound helmet. He's also in total darkness. So like, he can't see what he's doing. He's, he's having to fill his way around. He eventually finds the release for the buoyancy vest, which releases the vest and the helmet. And he begins ascending to the surface. I did a little, I was looking, I did some reading on, on diving while I'm doing this. Cause I have no experience in it at all. Uh, right. Although I, w- I would be, I, I, I would like to learn. I would like to go diving. I think it'd be really fun. But when someone ascends to the surface, the, the change in pressure, as we mentioned, is an issue. Uh, the diver has to breathe out as they descend or as they ascend, excuse me, releasing air from their lungs as they're going out, they're blowing bubbles out uh, in a technique that divers call a blow and go which is also the name of a side hustle that Gary's mom used to run. If I remember. Oh, ah! that's good. That's good. Nice. If the diver fails to breathe out, the compressed air in his lungs will expand as the pressure changes. And eventually his lungs will explode, which <laughs> I can't imagine is a very pleasant way to go. <laughs> no, no. That'll ruin your weekend. That'll ruin it. Uh, so Cameron, though, he, remember, he's a trained diver, so he knew this. So he's blowing out bubbles while he's kicking like a madman because he got rid of the buoyancy vest, but he still has ankle weights on. So he's kicking, mm. trying to get to the surface with ankle weights on. And finally, so they had these uh, safety divers on set. Every, you know, every actor had a safety diver that would watch them. If they made a motion that they needed, they were in trouble. The diver was ready to go and you know rescue them at all time. So one of these divers, a guy named George, uh, noticed that Cameron was in distress and he sped out to, uh, to, to help him. And safety divers are, they're trained to stop panic drivers from ascending so that they don't explode their lungs. So George uh, stopped Cameron about 15 feet from the surface and he gave Cameron his backup regulator so he could get some oxygen. Unfortunately, that backup regulator was faulty. So when Cameron tried to breathe in, he just inhaled a bunch of water. So it's making things worse. Yeah. So, so he's choking and he tried, he thinks that maybe he just, you know, did it wrong. He tries it again. Another mouthful of water. His lungs are filling with water. Uh, he's about to black out. And George, this whole time, George is holding him down to keep him from ascending. 
because <laughs> he doesn't want him to go to the surface. I guess he doesn't know that Cameron's a trained diver and was doing the blow and go thing the whole time. So he was getting the air out of his lungs. So George is holding him and he tried to pull away, but George, he thinks that Cameron is just panicking. So he's mm. like holding him really tight and trying to get him to breathe from this regulator, which Cameron at this point knows is not working correctly. So just as he's about to pass out and, and probably die, uh, Cameron pulled out all the punches, like literally. He, he punched George in the face as hard as he could, uh, which it, it can only be so hard underwater, honestly. But Cameron's a pretty big dude. You know, so yeah. he punches George in the face and George lets go and Cameron swims to the surface and, you know, lives. Obviously, we know we, we would have heard had Cameron died yeah. on the set of the Abyss. <laughs> uh, so he's OK, but he's pissed. You know, he's pissed <laughs> off. Um, he's pissed off for a couple of reasons. Uh, so, I mean, one, he's pissed off at George because George uh, gave him a faulty regulator and George almost caused him to drown. So he fired George by the end of that day. He also fired his assistant director because his assistant director was supposed to warn Cameron when he was getting low on oxygen because Cameron uh, getting absorbed in his work and getting low on oxygen was a common occurrence. And one of the AD's jobs was to time it and when he was getting down to where he had like 15 minutes left he was supposed to let cameron know and he forgot to do it this day uh, so he lost he, so he got fired too he earned it yeah i mean yeah <laughs> <laughs> causing your boss to almost die is a pretty good reason to get fired honestly. i wonder yeah. what their side of the story was that day when they went to the bar afterwards yeah they were like well it's fucking cameron if he uh you know everybody's always got their other side <laughs> sure yeah yeah of course there's, <laughs> there's two sides of every story <laughs> <laughs> So on our um, on our aliens episode, we talked about the famous T trolley mutiny, uh, and and I said something about that being you know that could possibly be where Cameron's reputation for being kind of a hard ass began, you know, uh, even though I think we all agreed on that one that the crew members were kind of being the dicks in the, in that particular case, yeah. but but to them Cameron was being the dick, you know, but it was really on the set of the Abyss that Cameron started to become known as a tyrant. I, I, I joked about this in one episode. It might've been on the aliens that there were crew members on the set that would wear t-shirts that said something like, um, I'm not afraid of anything. I, I worked on the abyss or something like that. You know, uh, <laughs> crew members would call it the abuse. They would, they, they like change the, the clapboard to say the abuse, Oh, that's uh, funny. We call it uh, "Son of the Abyss," you know things like that. <laughs> they had a lot of <laughs> a lot of good names for it. But I mean, as we all we've already documented uh, so far, the shooting days on the Abyss were incredibly tough. But James Cameron, we know he is not the kind of guy who's going to be deterred by a tough day. But he also expects everyone else to be as tough as he is. You know, to be as dedicated as he is oh, yeah. uh, and he and he worked at a relentless pace and he would criticize anyone who couldn't keep up he, he would call them wussies you know if they couldn't keep up uh and they couldn't they couldn't put in the long days that he was putting in then they weren't up to snuff and the actors had it particularly tough on set you, you got to remember these are none of them are like they're not divers they they learn to dive but this is not their life they're actors they're playing characters so they're having to do all this technical stuff while still you know, creating characters, which is, mm -hmm. which is incredibly difficult. A couple of scenes that, that, that stood out. One is the one where, uh, where Ed Harris and, and catfish have to swim underwater with, without their gear on, you know, mm -hmm. and they had to do that like five or six times, you know, and they're, they're literally swimming underwater with no breathing gear on and they're exhausted by the end of it. Oof. There was one scene where, it, where Harris has to descend the wall of the abyss and uh, he had to, hold his breath inside of a helmet filled with 
pink liquid while he was towed the entire length of the set. It was about 200 feet. Because uh, regardless of the fact that, you know, there have been experiments in uh, human liquid breathing um, on the set of this movie, that, that was just Ed Harris in a helmet filled with water, <laughs> filled with a liquid, with a pink liquid. So he <sighs> was having to hold his breath the entire time he had that helmet on with like, he had some uh, contacts that helped him like be able to focus underwater. Normally you can't focus underwater. Uh, but yeah, he's holding his breath the entire time and trying to make it look like he's not holding his breath the entire time, which is pretty tough. Jeez. Hey, didn't you, um, you, you, you had a video that you sent us Todd about breathable liquid. Is it possible? Did you get to the, did, did you, I didn't watch the whole video. Uh, basically I, I saw an article and, uh, it's kind of, it's in the works. Like, I mean, it's in, in short. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, it, it, we'll, we'll put the video. We'll put that link available on our yeah. social media. But. I mean, and as we'll get into, they did actually use that te- technology on the set, uh, but they didn't use it on people. Right. The, the biggest problem right. they have with it is the separation of, I think the nitrogen or something like yeah. it, it doesn't, they, they can't nail that down. You know, he actually even called in one interview I saw, he called, he said he, they even called the diver that he had seen as a kid. And mm-hmm. had him come and show them exactly what mixture he was using. Well, they actually they 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 it wasn't the diver on that that he, well, he said in the inter- I saw you in your notes. You said some guy from Duke, but in the interview, this yeah. was straight from Cameron's mouth. He said, "I called the diver that I saw when I was a kid, and brought him back on set to show us exactly the mixture he used." Huh. Interesting. Uh, I'll I'll get into what I I found in my research, um, which is. I think came out of that, uh, the futurist book, which, in, you know, they interviewed Cameron for as well. So, but again, this is f- almost 40 years ago. So you know, people's mm. memory, is, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, during one take, Ed Harris signaled that he was out of air uh, and a safety diver was nowhere to be found or he had gotten caught on something or something along that, those lines. Uh, but another diver rushed in opened Harris's faceplate and shoved a regulator in his mouth, Uh, but it was upside down. So all he got was a big gulp of water. Uh, And then finally Al Giddings rushed in to give Harris his own regulator so that he could breathe. But Ed Harris basically also almost drowned on the set of this movie. Uh, And he, he said that like at the end of that day, you know, he got in his car to go back to his hotel and he just like burst into tears uh, partially because he was like, he almost died. And also because he was kind of mad at himself, I think, uh, Mm -hmm. But for, for being as scared as he was, is kind of how he says it in inter- interviews. But later on, while he was doing press for the film, a reporter asked how he was treated on set and his answer that it was like asking a soldier how he was treated in Vietnam. So that's how Ed Harris viewed his time on The Abyss, although he softened on it later. Like if you watch him on uh, like the making of documentary uh, that came out in like 98 or so he's definitely softened on it and he he looks back not quite fondly but more fondly than than some of the interviews at the time would have mm. made you think i actually <laughs> look i went deeper into this to see like what cameron's side of the story would be on this kind of thing with the actors and everything because at, at the time i was reading about how like the press had like all these stories about how mistreated people were the american press especially were describing uh that like at any moment they were getting ready to kill James Cameron because of how he was right. treating them and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. And uh, anyway, this is a, a little long, but I'll, I'll read it. This is from Cameron during one of the interviews this is from that book I got on Amazon. But uh, he says, uh, uh, quote, the more we emphasize the secrecy of the film, the more people tended to look for negative information. 
The first news from the front was Premier Magazine's article, which set the tone for all future journalism for quite some time. It was a wildly inaccurate piece to the point of being total fabrication in certain specific instances. Yet I would get this article quoted back to me as if it were gospel. I was amazed. And now I'll never believe anything else I read about a film in production unless I know a good source. It reached a point where the actors were interviewed, but their quotes were ignored, and the journalists wrote what they felt like. Very bizarre. None of the actors hated me at all. They were eager to promote the movie, and they'll work with me again if I ask them to. They enjoyed the experience at the time. It was only this revisionist mentality that's been imposed from the outside. What exacerbated the problem, and it took me a while to understand why it was occurring, was the actors always wanted to talk about the most dangerous aspects of the shooting, as those were the areas where they were challenged the most. They wanted credit for going through the great learning adventure. The press always gave it a negative interpretation, as if the actors were complaining. I use this metaphor. If you went on a trip to the Amazon and you saw a poisonous snake, by the time you got back to tell everybody, it's bound to have been changed into, I almost got bitten by a snake and I nearly died. Who wants to hear you were, who wants to hear you are perfectly safe when the entertainment factor is increased by embellishment? Or Cameron says, the shooting of the abyss was hard work underwater, but never boring. He added, it was different for the actors. For them, it was like being in World War I. They were in the trenches for three weeks, so to speak. And they had about two hours of dangerous excitement after we got the lighting right. I'd get to the set in the morning. Actually, the evening, because we were forced to shoot nights for the last half of the entire underwater schedule as our tarp ripped open and let sunlight in. And I had to try to figure out what we could shoot, as there was always a problem with what was scheduled. If we needed to shoot a wide master of the set, there would be bound to be a failure in the pumping. So it goes on to mention a lot of these problems you mentioned already. So we'd have to often just sit and huddle and work out what actors weren't in New York and what we could do instead. Every single day, there was a glitch, usually due to a tank system. We planned the shot, readied equipment, worked solidly underwater for 10 hours. The actors were never underwater longer than two hours a day. The crew put in all the hours. And we had to decompress at the end of each day. My version of the daily grind was always being busy and driving ourselves beyond fatigue. The actor's version of that reality was they sat around and with nothing to do for days on end. Yeah, a, a couple of things that uh, in that quote that um, I think there's uh, you could contradict are that one there were there there it was boring to a lot of the actors. Sometimes he says that it was never boring, but like Michael Bean, who Michael Bean looks back at this pretty fondly as, as like I said, as does Ed, Ed Harris for the most part, he had difficult days, but he did. Um, he does seem to look back at it fondly and says that he had fun doing a lot of like undersea stuff. It was challenging and that was fun to him, but Michael Bean seems like he was having a, a good time doing it, but he does say that like there were days when they would, you know, they'd have to sit in a submersible in a sub, uh, while they like set up shots and set up lighting and they'd be in that sub for eight hours just with nothing to do. Well, well, uh, and that, then, that and is what he said. Scene. If I, if I read it, he says, Cameron said shooting the abyss was hard work underwater, but never boring. He added, it was different for the actors for them. Oh, it was yeah, like yeah. being in world war one. Yeah. Um, Big, and the, the, what's her name who plays um, one night. She, she uh, started knitting during the making of this. And she says that like, I'll tell you how long I was in those, thing is i knitted three entire sweaters during the course of making the abyss so. wow. well, i totally get yeah. that from just the nwa stuff i do like the hardest part about tv taping days is like you go in there waiting around yeah you're, i mean you're in there from like 10 o'clock in the morning till like 10 o'clock at night yeah. and so for the talent it's just like 
waiting, waiting yeah, for waiting Napier for to go yeah. do something. And so well, that's they, the grind. And the other part of that quote that I would probably um, contradict is saying that like all the actors loved him and that any of them would work with him again. I don't know that Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio would, <laughs> would do that uh, because she did not do press for the film, which he says that all the actors did. She, uh, she took a conveniently timed like three month vacation to Europe during the press tour for the abyss and mm. kind of ran away. Uh, mm. she did, and even on that documentary that came out, I think in 1998, that's on the abyss DVD. She is nowhere to be seen on the entire documentary. She is not there. She did not participate. So, uh, I don't know that she would have worked with him again had she been asked. Uh, in fact, one of the most notorious stories from the making of the film uh, involves her. It came about three months into the shoot, and it's on a dry set, so it's not in the, in the tank. But it was during the scene where Bud has to revive Lindsay, uh, the most emotional scene in the film by far. Uh, mm. So for this scene, Master Antonio had to lie on the floor soaking wet. Her shirt's ripped open. You know, her boobs are out. Her eye, she can't blink because she's supposed to be dead. Uh, she had eye drops in her eyes to dilate her pupil, so she can't see very well because of that. Uh, and they're shooting the most emotional, like the emotional climax of the film, basically. Yeah. And they shoot it, and the first take is really strong, but the strong the, sh the shot wasn't positioned well, uh, the way they were standing, like Harris's arm blocked Master Antonio's face. Uh, and then they did a second take, and the second take was incredible. Like, people described it as, like magic uh, crew members described, you know, the hairs on their neck standing up watching it. It was like exactly what you wanted the scene to be, uh, but it was a little bit longer than the one before it. And just as the, the scene's about to end, Lindsay's starting to revive. Uh, they hear the flapping of film. The camera had run out oh, of film God. <laughs> and it ruined the scene. Uh, and, and right as they were nearing the finish line, it ruins the scene. It kills all the tension in the room because, again, it's very emotional anyway. And Master, Master Antonio, this is one of the more famous, you know, moments from the making of this that you that were that was written about a lot at the time. But she, you know, kind of jumped up and screamed that, you know, we're not animals. And she stormed off the set and she didn't return for several hours after, you know, apologies from Cameron and Heard. She finally came back and, and Ed Harris kind of talking with her. Uh, helped her come back as well but uh but while she was gone ed harris filmed his close-ups of the scene including the line where he says you never backed or backed away from anything and slaps her you know uh and in the cut that we see in the film he's performing while she's you know off in her her dressing room or wherever and he's performing against against nobody uh he's just performing wow. for the camera and when he slaps Lindsay, he's just slapping like a sandbag off the screen but that entire close-up of him is him playing off nobody, which as, as good as that scene is, it really makes you appreciate just how fucking good Ed Harris is that he's playing that off of nobody. Yeah, <laughs> like that's insane. God almighty. That's awesome. <laughs> it's well, I cool. mean, it's, it's a little less impressive when you find out Ed Harris is actually a sandbag hobbyist. He collects them. <laughs> so like he, he's really attached to his collection. Oh, oh that's sandbagger. Using one of his personal sandbags. <laughs> um, I mean, when, when I watched this movie, when I was a kid, I was pretty awed by, you know, the underwater stuff, the water tentacles the aliens all that showy stuff in the film uh, that's mm -hmm. kind of what a lot most people remember about it but watching it this time man i think this is this scene is not only the best scene in the abyss i think it might be the best scene that cameron has ever filmed i mean it is from an emotional standpoint it is incredible uh and, and like i said before aside from titanic cameron isn't 
you know, known for making emotional films, but this is like a, a very, it's a devastating scene to watch. And it's almost entirely driven by Harris's performance. And for a movie that, you know, has all these stories about the making of it and how difficult it was. The best scene, in my opinion, in the entire movie, had, there are no special effects at all. Uh, you know, there's there's no, nothing underwater. Uh, it's just a, a great actor giving an incredible performance, and it, yeah. and it makes the scene. Uh, it like it blew me away watching it this time uh, because you know when I when I watched this movie when I was eleven, I didn't give a fuck about that. I wanted to see the aliens and I wanted to see you know submarines fighting underwater and bumping into each other and all this stuff. But yeah. watching it now, I'm like, oh, this guy just this guy literally just like watched his wife die in front of him. Like not just the reviving scene, but the scene before yeah. where he, you know, they decide that's what they have to do. And he has to watch her drown yeah. and he screams inside of his helmet, you know, and like that's emotionally draining yeah, even tough. as a viewer. It's, it's, I, it's, it's very tough to watch. I, yeah. it, we, we've, we've made jokes uh, numerous times about uh, Gary with uh, his, his feelings on eyeball violence. Yeah. Um, I had some thoughts and some feelings and uh, about underwater stuff. Oh, and did you Gary's, almost drown if, when you were a kid? I did almost drown. Yeah. yeah. Um, that might be a story for a different time, but <laughs> needless to say, like underwater stuff is always a little dicey for me watching. Yeah. Wow. This whole I'm movie so must have been like triggering I had to I had to get up off the couch at least twice really? and this and this was one of them I, yeah. I I was like I have to go into the kitchen and you know get the, get a snack or something I get it I get it <laughs> it was really rough but just to show that it most of the time I can sit through it this 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 was incredibly powerful yeah, yeah. it really is it really is uh, um, and I wanted to clarify something by the way too uh this is it's still about being underwater the diver that he talked to when he was younger was a volunteer for the experiment of the guy that had done the duke university thing so it was a different guy so i apologize uh, it was okay he was he was he was the diver that the guy from duke used to test the stuff yeah okay. so he was looking him up and realized his name and then ended up talking to that guy to get the stuff well, that, well that, that's actually the next thing I was going to bring up is uh, the scene where the Navy SEAL demonstrates the liquid oxygen on a rat. You know? Yeah. How, what did, you're... How, did, how did PETA feel about that? Okay. Well, I don't, I don't know how PETA probably didn't like it. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but what you're seeing on screen is real. So Cameron, you know, he contacted the researcher, the guy Gary's talking about. His name was like work... Kyle Stra was the, the yeah it was like uh a yeah i didn't write down his name or something but this was a guy who'd been working on the the, the idea of breathable liquid he <laughs> found it he was at duke university which is you know not too far from gaffney it's a you know it's up the road a little bit in north carolina yeah. uh, and the researcher gave cameron his he basically gave cameron the recipe to create breathable liquid and cameron uh followed his method to a t and recreated the experiment on screen with five live rats so what they would do so, uh, you know, when you, they put them under that little basket and the actors are watching them, the reactions you're seeing are real because they're watching the experiment happening in front of their eyes. They couldn't like they didn't want to practice this a bunch of times and put these poor rats through it a bunch of times. Yeah. So but what they would do is, um, you know, after each take, Cameron would grab the tail, grab the uh, rat by the tail and spill the liquid from their lungs, just like we see in the movie. And uh, and then they would actually take them off to a vet to give them an antibiotic. 
uh, in case they were to get an infection because you know with the the liquid coming out of their lungs it could um it could affect the the lining of their lungs yeah, yeah. and and they could get infected easier so they'd immediately take them to the vet and give them an antibiotic and everything went fine for the rats one through four um but when it was the fifth rat's turn cameron lifted them up by the tail after the take and the it wasn't squirming he was just completely still not breathing uh, so cameron's thinking oh fuck like i everyone's like the whole cast and crew's here he's like i cannot have a story coming off of my set where i just drown a rat on camera <laughs> so um so he, cameron administered cpr on the rat uh not mouth to mouth just like not mouth to mouth the uh like <laughs> like impressions uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Compression, compressions, though you call it. Yeah, it's just it's just compressions. Yeah, so he was he was doing that to the rat, and it worked. Wow. And the rat came back, and Cameron actually kept the rat as a pet until the until it died. It died like a year and a half later. Died of old age, uh, <laughs> but he he he. I guess he felt a connection to the rat after saving its life, wow. and he kept it as a as a pet. Which the, I think the person, one of the people sweet. in the interviews, <laughs> asked about it, and he was like, "Yes, that rat was my pet for a year and a half. It died at the equivalent rat age of like ninety five, about a week ago from when that interview was. He was like, it's about a week ago, actually.' So." His life was not shortened in any way. Yeah. He, he I, apparently the big life. deal with that stuff that they have a problem with is because of the way it's, it's taken in. It's like uh, the FDA never approves it. So they like get, they have a hard time with the FDA over here. Yeah. Uh, the British censors for this movie actually cut any parts of the rat out. They try to keep like the narrative in there, but because of some act that was passed in, uh, in, in England that like they, they have to cut it out because it was like some law that was helped pass by like some veterinarian where you can't show like animals. the royal vet. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I guess that was it. Uh, yeah. But it was uh, the one who takes, takes care of all of the queen's corgis. <laughs> yeah. You can't show like an animal experiencing pain or, or something yeah. like that. But, it's, huh. it's actually, I mean, a lot of people won't probably know this, but her majesty actually does drown rats regularly so they need <laughs> <laughs> after dealing with her subject she goes into this special room at buckingham palace and just that's drowns how, rats that's how she uh deals with stress <laughs> that's also the end of cinema shock as we get accused of slander and <laughs> or libel or whatever cinema shock is no longer available in the uk <laughs> so uh, a lot of the innovations that Cameron and his crew were making to bring the abyss to life were practical feats of engineering, but the, uh, they were, there were also major innovations made on the special effects end of things as well. So there, there's a lot of firsts on this film, you know, uh, the first uh, underwater set of this size, the first time filming uh, with, you know, recording sound underwater, uh, the first time, I don't know, drowning rats on screen. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the other problems that was left to solve was the uh, the water tentacle that the NTIs used to communicate with the crew of the Deep Corps. So when he first started reaching out to effects houses about the about doing this effect, Cameron didn't think that CGI was the answer. He, he did, in fact, in the letter that he wrote to them, he specifically told them not to use CGI because he, he didn't think it was there. He didn't think the technology was to the point where they could do that yet. At this point in time, CGI had only been used in a handful of films. I mean, it had been used in Tron and The Last Starfighter. But, you know, those... of uh, take place in computers and inside video games. So having it look kind of blocky and stuff works in those cases. But for the abyss, Cameron needed the water tentacle to seem organic, uh, which is something that CGI had yet to pull off. 
one guy who was becoming a, a proponent for the use of CGI in movies was a special effects maestro by the name of Dennis Muren. I don't know if we've ever talked about Dennis Muren on the show. Ring, have doesn't, we? doesn't ring a bell. Okay. So I don't get, I can't get too far into Dennis Muren's background. Uh, his, his background is pretty fascinating, but I'm sure we'll get into that down the line. Uh, but this guy is an absolute legend in the world of special effects. Uh, early in his career, he was hired as a cameraman, a special effects cameraman for industrial light and magic. Uh, very, very early on in, uh, in that company's history. That was the ILM. That's ILM, the special effects company that was founded by George Lucas. Uh, Muren was one of the first special effects artists hired for Star Wars. And he helped to build ILM into the company that he would that it would become. Uh, simply put, he is one of the most influential and pioneering visual effects artists of all time. Uh, movies would not look the way that they look now if Dennis Muren wasn't involved. Wow. Uh, by the late 80s, though, he was he was looking for a challenge. Uh, he'd helped usher in a new era of special effects with miniatures and motion control work for Star Wars, but he saw CGI as the future of visual effects, and uh, he, he was wanting to help move ILM in that direction. In the 80s, George Lucas had actually started his own little computer division. Uh, it was called Pixar. You know, it was kind of just a place for George Lucas and the ILM guys to do experiments in, in CGI and stuff. Well, Pixar got sold to Steve Jobs in 1985 for only $5 million, which is insane because Jobs, when he sold it to Disney 20 years later, sold it for $7.4 billion. So, so, it, good, so it did well. So it was a good so investment the, oh, on, oh, okay. on Steve Jobs' right. part. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but with Pixar no longer part of ILM, that actually gave Dennis Muren the opportunity to push ILM's own CG division without it being a separate thing. And Muren had actually been a big fan of Cameron's Aliens, and he wanted James Cameron to kind of be the first guy that he'd worked with. So he approached Cameron about this, and he met with Cameron, and he showed him some rough but promising animation, and he assured James Cameron that ILM could pull off, like, what he wanted to do with this water tentacle. Mm. And Cameron kind of took a leap of faith with ILM, and it did take them about nine months which is a long time for the company to complete and deliver uh, just 20 shots of, uh, of the water tentacle. I think it amounts to, I don't know, 30 seconds of screen time or something. It's not very much. But when Cameron saw the results, he knew that he had made the right decision. Like as soon as he saw it, uh, he, he was like, okay, this, is, this technology has a lot of potential. And obviously we'll see on our next episode that he uses that technology and pushes it to places that it's never been before on Terminator 2. As written... The ending of the abyss was to see the, the NTIs uh, who are they're sick of seeing humanity hurt each other. Uh, they, they think that we're, we're barreling towards nuclear annihilation. And they use this giant wave uh, that threatens everyone on Earth to teach them a lesson. So pulling off the image of this giant wave, this tidal wave frozen, looming over cities was pretty tricky to pull off. Uh, and it still wasn't quite finished. You know, they were working on it, but it wasn't quite finished when Fox held its first test screenings of the film in May of 1989. So instead audiences were shown a drawing of the wave, you know, and special effects not finished or something like that on the screen, which is not uncommon at test screenings. Uh, but at this point, though the film had already been delayed several times due to effects work. I mean, it was already, I think a month past when it was, a, was already supposed to be released, you know? Mm. 
And Cameron also once again had a movie that was way too long to be released. It was pushing three hours. So he actually opted to cut the wave sequence, even though removing it meant that a lot of the film's major themes were no longer present, which honestly feels a lot like the original cut of Aliens in that regard. But to their credit, this was not a studio mandated cut. The, the Fox did not come to Cameron and ask him to take the wave stuff out. Uh, they, they did feel that the movie needed to be shorter, Uh, And they actually questioned whether removing the wave sequence was the right move, but Cameron actually had final cut in his contract. So it was his decision to make. Nice. And so he cut it out. He cut, he cut the wave out and he cut a lot of stuff out of that final uh, conversation between Ed Harris and the NTIs that kind of tie into that. But um, he got the movie down to, I don't know, I think it was like two hours and 17 minutes by the time he cut it all out instead of two hours and like, 52 minutes or something like that it was pretty long to begin with Uh, and when the abyss was released on august 8 1989 it had a new shorter ending and unlike cameron's previous films reviews were kind of mixed Um, and a lot of the reviewers specifically targeted the ending of the film Uh, i'll I'll read i'll I'll read a couple of um excerpts from some of these and then i'll then we'll we'll pass the mic to gary (laughs) <laughs> well, I was going to jump in there too, real quick, just for anybody yeah. wondering. I was muted, and uh, so you could hear me. Yeah, uh, he compared it to. I just thought this was a nice connection. Uh, in Aliens, he said there was the part, you know, like when he had to make cuts because this was not studio mandated. He said he had final cut on the film, film, um, and so he just felt like the public wouldn't digest it being that long, and he was never quite pleased with the tidal wave sequence. And he also felt like I think the effects alien. were not quite up to what he wanted to do. Yeah. He yeah. said, even though they, they specifically had worked on it for so long, but uh, he said that, that the um, idea in aliens, remember when we talked about a little bit, he, that there was the, uh, the thought of like cutting out the stuff on the uh, planet before the Marines get there, you know, mm-hmm. because it seems separated from, what's going on emotionally with the movie or something. And so he kind of felt that way about the tidal wave sequence at some parts. He felt like there were like positives to it. Uh, and I, I, cause I disagree with him. I actually think it works really well. I like it. I think it's cool, but he, uh, he says he felt like he shouldn't have anything that he thought there were any negatives to. And one thing there were was cutting from this area where like all these people have been together for so long and there's like this emotional core of things happening. And then you go to the outside world and it's all a bunch of characters that you've never met before. Yeah. And you're running from stuff on the surface level. And like, you've never seen any of these people in your life. And um, he said it, he felt like the the reason he cut it was just, he felt like it was kind of disconnected from what was happening. Yeah. And and he did, you know, at those test screenings, the, the wave sequence, even though it was unfinished, this wasn't really why, uh, it being unfinished wasn't really why I think that he got these comments, but you know, they give out the comment cards at these test screenings and people will put, you know, what, what scene they like the best and what scene they like the, the least. And the wave sequence was like evenly split between people. Like some people loved it. Some people hated it. And I think the fact that so many people hated it or didn't understand it really is what it was. That's how he interpreted it. They, they didn't really understand what he was doing with it. Uh, that, that's why he kind of made the decision to cut it out. Yeah, I, I I actually had not seen that version of the movie before with the way it's oh, really? until this time. And so I thought it was better for me personally. Like I, yeah. I enjoyed seeing because first of all, I just always love those videos you can find on YouTube or Reddit or anywhere where like the 
huge fucking waves like i something about like open bodies of water and the weird shit that could happen but like massive waves are like the most one of the most wicked nature things that can yeah. happen and just yeah. the idea of a tsunami fucking wiping out your town just one day you're just like walking down the street and a fucking 50 foot wave just comes <laughs> right yeah. like, absolutely shit. terrifying yeah, yeah. It's wicked. So I don't know the idea of these waves and the and I thought it looked good, like just off in the distance, like like a giant well, kaiju or something coming towards. I mean, the city. I, I'll get into it in a minute. But the, the what you're seeing in that cut was not created in 1989. Like yeah, that that yes. was it, that was finished a few years. Well, not many years later, but a few years later. Gotcha. So well, the, the these little blurbs I want to read from uh, from some of the publications that were reviewing the film at the time. Remember, these people are, they're seeing the original theatrical ending uh, without the wave. And Newsweek said, quote, the payoff to the abyss is pretty damn silly. A portentous deus ex machina that leaves too many questions unanswered and evokes too many other films. Uh, The Globe and Mail said, at its best, the abyss offers a harrowing, thrilling journey through inky waters and high tension. In the end, however, this torpedo turns out to be a dud. It swerves at the last minute, missing its target and exploding ineffectually in a flash of fantasy and fairy tale shtick. Oof. USA Today said, most of the underwater blockbuster, most of this underwater blockbuster is good, and at least two action set pieces are great, but the dopey wrap up sinks the rest 20,000 leagues. And I, I think mostly these people are, are complaining about, they think that it's, the ending is kind of hokey, kind of cheesy, you know, because people were maybe expecting Cameron to give us another aliens. And the fact that the aliens were benign, I think threw people off a little bit. That's kind of how I, I, I interpreted it, uh, that it was just too, it was too nice of an ending, you know, and maybe a little naive of an ending. Uh, but that's kind of where I think they're coming from. But Gary, I'm sure you can find some folks on the internet who, uh, who have their own words to say about people fucking hate james cameron on the internet i don't they, they sure do <laughs> i just i really don't understand it but <laughs> he is not well liked uh, <laughs> I, I think i would i think i would enjoy having a conversation with him he seems very interesting to me and he uh, seems like a very uh well-intentioned man absolutely uh, and so yeah I, i've got nothing personal against him and and even though the dad onto those ones you said i saw i saw like a rolling stone article that said it out etzt and then yeah. there was another uh, blurb from like film 89 at the time that said just how fucking terrible the script was <laughs> and, like there. It was just split down the middle. So people like, needed a nap even back, even back then. Yeah. But, uh, but not so, everyone, like I said, it was mixed reviews. They, they had good reviews as well. Yeah. And, uh, but, but of course the internet being what it is, there are still plenty of people that in uh, 40 years later who uh, see the abyss and they still need a nap. <laughs> Let's start with uh, Willie9320 here who says, what a load of rubbish. I sat through an hour and a half before its soporific effect caused me to switch off and find something interesting to do. Very poor storyline, though the special effects were very good and expensive, but a turnip is still a turnip, no matter how many carrots they give you with it. The pressure effects (laughs) of working at death were completely ignored, and it was frequently quite hard to know where the actors were actually supposed to be. A far cry from Aliens or Titanic. I'm not surprised this did badly at the box office. 
Honestly, it sounds like that guy just wasn't paying enough attention to the movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it really does. I, I don't know how you don't know. I mean, like, character literally dies from the pressure effects. Of right. <laughs> like him and his ship are. That's crushed. a great death, by the way. I, I, yes. I was going to say the same thing. Like, <laughs> That's a great death. It's actually. And, he, and, he, and, cool. you, and it, it feels like he deserves it. Like, <laughs> like It's a very satisfying uh, villain yeah. death. Witsith says, OMG awful is the title of this review. Uh, I saw the extended version with the real ending. It's just as rubbish as the shorter version. This is an astonishingly poor movie. It's sort of close encounters underwater, but with awful dialogue, one-dimensional characters, and zero imagination. It's the kind of film that one keeps watching, presuming that some development or impressive finale will make up for all the dross that one has to sit through. It doesn't. I watched the longer version thinking the director's cut might have some qualities that the theatrical release did not. Big mistake. Unless you're a student of bad filmmaking, avoid this one. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Here's a, (laughs) this this one's written, uh, this one's titled So Awful I Turned It Off After 20 Minutes. You already know it's good. You'll know it's even (laughs) better when you see that the author of this review was named Beat My Meat 11. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Uh, I was only able to manage watching 20 painful minutes of the abyss before turning it off. The dialogue by today's standards is horrific. I've watched a number of sci-fi movies from this era and none of them damaged my soul quite like this one. The introduction of Lindsay Brigman was very cliche. Yes, Cameron, we get it. She's the sassy, intellectually gifted woman and the chief engineer aboard the submarine. With her status, she's in charge of a bunch of male Navy SEALs and surprise, surprise, they don't respect her. Bremen's leader status is unbelievable, and even her mere presence on a United States submarine is a joke in itself. Although women have been allowed to serve in the Navy for many years now, no woman ever went on a voyage in a U.S. submarine until 26 years after this movie was made. You got very well, so, that, that was like what's this point? point? I don't know <laughs> because it almost sounded halfway through, right? Like he was about to take up for James Cameron being sexist. But then at the end, it got kind of like, it's a joke that she's there. Yeah. <laughs> What's your point? Also, this movie has aliens living on the bottom of the ocean. Are we looking for realism? Yeah. <laughs> like, what, what, is, what is your point, dude? Uh, movie expert 005. Says, oh, uh, that's his name. Yeah. Movie expert. So he's not a 007, though. No, no, no. no. no, no. But, the, but there are at least four others. Yeah. <laughs> uh this 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 person uh their their review is titled waste of time and james cameron the thief so uh i'm out okay (laughs) give it to us (laughs) most movies from james cameron are stealing from other movies terminator stealing from westworld many action scenes from terminator 2 are stealing from robocop abyss is only underwater but stealing from close encounters of the third kind true lies is stealing from la totale Avatar. It's a remake of La Total, you dumb shit. <laughs> Avatar is stealing from Dances with Wolves or Pocahontas. Titanic is stealing from a night to remember. Aliens is stealing from the original Alien. And Alita Battle Angel is stealing from iRobot with Will Smith. I don't like James Cameron. He is the Antichrist. And oh, all of James Cameron movies are very boring. Stupid dialogue and too long. Titanic is is uh, stealing from a night to remember another movie set on the Titanic. It <laughs> <laughs> uh, makes sense. Uh, Star Star Trek Three is stealing. From they, they named the boat the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> they named- 
they're Star Trek two and three are both about some crew on the Enterprise. So oh, Star Trek well. three is totally ripping off Star Trek two. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I say that actually that well no no Star Trek three is still on there. I was gonna say if I'd use four, I'd have fucked up because no Enterprise. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. Kristen says bad language and abuse of the actress. The movie is riveting to watch in parts, but the bad language is distractingly pervasive, especially the taking of God's name in vain. A huge problem I have with the movie is a scene where Mary Elizabeth Massett, uh, Master Antonio. Master Antonio. God, it's it's tough. Trouble. I know, it's tough. It's treated very badly. Being, to, be fair, to be fair, her name does sound like a Harry Potter spell. That's it's true. <laughs> or a teacher at Hogwarts. Yeah. Uh, being resuscitated with the bare breast exposed. Ed Harris slaps her twice across the face hard and screams, fight you bitch, fight. It's so unnecessary and awful. Abuse, it worked. Plain and simple. I can't believe anyone would treat the actress or character this way. Completely disrespectful to women. <laughs> I mean, he did save her life. Yeah, he did. That, that <laughs> he doesn't did. matter. He, he should have been life. more respectful about it. And he slapped her, a or let her die. the actress. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Bill says, uh, I watched three fourths waiting for something scary to happen, you know, like in a horror movie. Nada, turned it off, don't recommend. Some strange things were happening, but they were not nearly interesting enough to waste more time on this piece of shit. He's mad that uh, it's not a horror movie, yeah. He was mad because, <laughs> man, I got really pissed when I watched Dumb and Dumber and and, and you know, Lloyd did <laughs> it wasn't a period people. drama. <laughs> <laughs> um, this was from Straight Shooter, so you know it's legit. Uh, it says, uh, one, it's a cross between a disaster movie and an alien contact movie. Neither concept works. Two, to come up with action that occupies half the running time, a character goes crazy, really, for no reason. Three, everyone is constantly shouting and screaming. It seems to be the only way the director can convey a sense of crisis. Four, nonstop profanity. I have no problem with swearing when it's needed for character development development or as an occasional expletive but everyone in the abyss just keeps throwing swear words around with no real purpose except to show they're under stress these are supposed to be well-educated professionals and five none of the characters are likable not one all of them constantly whine beg cry argue and lose their temper one of them keeps calling his ex-wife baby in the most patronizing way six for the denouement, the scriptwriter remembered the second genre that the film was supposed to satisfy and brought the film to a totally hokey climax that was going to make no sense whichever way it was going to end. The back and forth decision explaining was just juvenile. Straight Why are so many of these people like hung up on the curse words? And this, and this movie doesn't have that much cursing in it anyway. It's PG-13, isn't it? Yeah, like, I think so. I don't, yeah. I don't recall there being that much language in it, but I don't know. Yeah, All right. yeah. Well, I'll try PG-13. to wrap this up. Here's some quick hits from Letterboxd. Uh, James Fitzgerald says, every single plot point took 11 times longer than it should have to resolve. The script went through zero revisions, and they left as little as possible on the cutting room floor, a masterclass in James Cameron's worst traits. Yep. Wow. Uh, Talon says, I mean, James Cameron has just never been a good director, has he? The sexism, <laughs> sexism alone makes this movie unbearable. The ignorance of physics... Like basic shit, like water pressure. I don't know why these people think they missed water pressure. It is yeah, a pretty no. pivotal thing in the movie. It's a yeah. very pivotal part <laughs> of the story. Uh, <laughs> it's just another layer of unbearable. None of the characters are well-written or directed. The horror slash thrill isn't convincing. And the story is so eye-roll-inducing. It's just 
such a bad movie that it might as well be a comedy. All of these people also like almost all of these reviews, like people are specifically targeting like James Cameron personally, it seems like not just the movie. It's, it's really, a, it's a very bizarre. I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, peaceful anarchy <laughs> goes after our, our cinematographer, Fred. Fred, he says a terrible cinematography for which it somehow got nominated. Terrible acting, terrible writing, terrible score, heavy handed and insulting ending that did not earn the right to use real world war footage. Cameron is clearly enamored with his own creations and self-importance. It's disgusting. David says this movie is a fantastic cinema, cinematic tech demo at best, but even that characterization is hamstrung by boring, ugly, ineffective cinematography during all the easy on-set scenes. More importantly, the plot is just unforgivable Reagan-era sexist garbage wrapped up in the abysmal, get it, petulant script. <laughs> written by a sociopathic man who clearly hates women and yet appears to be addicted to marrying and divorcing them. This sucks that James Cameron should sink down to the bottom of the Mariana Trench with all his Avatar money and just stay there. I don't understand people saying that James Cameron hates women when like most of his movies the have very the, strong the, the female strongest, figures. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the strongest characters are women. I mean, You're right. I uh, didn't even realize how many of these reviews. I only, I only had a couple more here. Uh, Blue says, uh, uh, when are we going to collectively as a society come together and say James Cameron movies are dog shit? Wow. <laughs> you think that's and, what we should come together as a society on? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right now, in this day and age, we should really get together. <laughs> at, least, at least we can agree on that. Both sides <laughs> of the aisle. Uh, <laughs> and finally, Kevin says, are you kidding me? Cameron really went up to his producers and was like, it's the Poseidon adventure meets the perfect storm meets Das Boot meets AI meets Interstellar plus the ending of Orday. Most also, of those movies were not out yet. I was going to say, at least, <laughs> at least three of them weren't out yet. <laughs> but hey, let's throw in some nuclear warheads, a hurricane, and some aquatic Donnie Darko looking aliens. And they gave him $70 million. All caps. Jimmy couldn't choose a single storyline or genre to stick to. The Disney score is terrible. The handheld camera work is distracting. The characters are stock at best. And the geography of their underwater rig makes no sense. The whole second half is a giant fucking mess. Lol. This movie is atrocious, atrociously bad. The only good part was Michael B, who is psychotic but very hot. I mean, we can all agree on that. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> Cinema Shock stands with you. Michael <laughs> Bean is hot. <laughs> we can all get behind that aspect. That's that. Michael Bean's the part that brings both sides to the aisle. <laughs> and you heard it here. Gary said he'd get behind Michael Bean. I heard 100%. It. Yeah. Just, <laughs> all of, was that all, all of them, Gary? Yeah. Is that that's all, it. That's that's all I'd like today. to take I would like to take all of those people and uh put them in a little gate and submerge them in pink lo liquid. <laughs> <laughs> but not not the breathable kind. No, just, not the, <laughs> just, <laughs> just pink liquid. <laughs> well, for the first time in his career, uh the film also underwhelmed at the box office bringing in 90 million dollars worldwide on a 45 million dollar budget. That guy said 70. I think maybe with marketing it might have been closer to 70, but uh, 45 is the, is the number that I found, uh, but $90 million on 45, you know, so it's not a flop, but it definitely was underwhelming compared to what they were hoping for. Uh, it did, however, get nominated for four Academy Awards and brought home the Oscar for best special effects. Very well-deserved in my uh, opinion. 
Yeah. And uh, then in, in 1992, Cameron was given the chance to re-edit the film. This is after the success of Terminator 2, of course. He was able to re-edit the film for a special edition, adding 27 minutes of material, including the newly finished wave sequence that we talked about. Uh, so that's the version that you you watched, right, Gary? Was that the version you watched, Todd? Yeah, you watched yeah. The, the special the edition version. I think yeah, I texted yeah. you guys and I was like, Hey, if you only have time to watch one, watch the special edition. It, I, it, um, yeah, I watched both. Um, and I, I think I texted you guys after watching the, the longer cut. And I do think it's the definitive version of the movie because it really does, uh, hammer home the, the, the themes of, of the film, you know, which I think were lost on the theatrical cut, uh, much like in aliens, you know, we talked about the themes of motherhood and stuff and that, which kind of get lost. If you don't know that Sigourney Weaver's character is a mother, <laughs> which yeah. they would say cut out of the theatrical version. Well, uh, but, and then it gives some stakes to the alien too. Like I felt yeah. like that's kind of missing in the other version that I remember, um, that it was just kind of like they're, there are a lot of talk, but can they back it up? You know, and then, I don't know something about seeing the waves. I was like, oh shit. Like they could just fucking wipe up the planet right now. They could just right. get us out. Yeah. yeah. If they choose to. And, and you guys uh, both kind of grew up watching this, but had Gary, you had never seen the special edition before this. I, I don't, uh, I don't think I had because when the wave stuff started happening, I was like, shit, I, I don't remember this. This is going to yeah. be the new part. Like I don't remember. What about you, Todd? Had you ever seen the special edition? Yeah, no, I don't think so. I think the one that you was... grew up watching it like on TV, exactly. which would have been the theatrical cut. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, this was probably uh, the theatrical on television. So <laughs> modified. So this yeah, was the yeah. first time getting to see. I think this was my first time getting to see any version of it from beginning to end. Oh, without um, commercial breaks? Yeah, without commercial breaks. Yeah. <laughs> really? That's <laughs> yeah. fun. That's interesting. I, I, what what credit did I have to give to one of the reviewers? Uh, well, no, I'm not giving them any of those people credit, but I will say <laughs> this. Uh, thinking of it as a horror movie, there was definitely this movie had like it was the lines were blurred when it was released or the way that it was pitched or something. You know, they tried to make it um marketing didn't i think marketing maybe thought that he was doing another aliens yeah well, <laughs> so if you're looking at james or Cameron, they wanted to sell aliens it. in the terminator so he's yeah. like clearly got like this uh evil bend to them or like some some kind of force like coming at yeah. him so the fact that the aliens aren't they're just like friendly and just like hey, yeah i mean the monster here is coffee the people yeah, yeah. Lieutenant, exactly. lieutenant coffee right. yeah yeah or the idea of the cold war or whatever you know yeah just humanity in general yeah <laughs> um and and i looked i was looking that up too and 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 so uh cameron it, it says that he was worried about all that he called them quote dive-in movies maybe it was a misprint maybe a drive-in i don't know uh but he said uh my cause for concern uh, it's, it's a pun <laughs> Oh yeah! Oh, I see. Okay, <laughs> sorry that I missed that, Jim. Uh, Not known for his comedy, that Jim Cameron. <laughs> he says my cause for concern vanished when I found out what they were about. I had to give the audience enough credit to be able to distinguish between my other films and and the other relatively straightforward horror shockers. My concern was whether it was being sold ambiguously as containing horror elements. I'm still worried about these wrong impressions hits this publicity tour where I can redress and emphasize the differences. So this is from his press tour. Uh, he said his fears were compounded when he got to England because uh, he said, uh, I got here and he was like, I was asked by the girl at passport control while I was here. I said to promote my movie, she asked me what it was. And I told her 
And she replied, oh, it looks absolutely horrifying. She was, she was <laughs> responding to these studio approved trailers and the mm-hmm. television presentation. And so what the abyss is really about is a message that doesn't seem to be coming through loud and clear for a reason I don't understand. I suppose everyone naturally assumes it's in the same mode as my last two movies. Well, I think that was a part of the problem uh, was the, was the marketing of it. But also when it came out in 1989, you know, the, the film's message got lost. A big part of that was because of the excise footage, uh, you know, that we've talked about, but also because all of these stories like that, the, like the one James Cameron mentioned in Premiere Magazine, all these stories that surrounded the making of the film almost overshadowed it. You know, there's talk of cost overruns, directorial hubris. These are all things that we'll continue to hear about on James Cameron movies, especially on Titanic and Avatar. Uh, And they kind of threatened to overwhelm the conversation uh, on the actual film, Um, which the film is, whether, you know, whether you agree with the story points or whatever, it is a marvel of filmmaking technique. Uh, I don't think I don't know how anyone could argue that. No, no, you know, that much is clear. And Cameron, you know, he does have a a bad reputation as being kind of a tyrant on sets. But we have all these stories about the making of the film and his behavior, but none of them sound as bad as like you kind of think that they're going to, you know, like he he was tough and he did yell at people. And he's even admitted in later years that, you know, I, I thought that's how you should that. I thought that's how you led a set and I was wrong. And he, he said that, but you also have to remember that this, he's not just, he's not just a guy standing on the sidelines. Like he is living and breathing this film from concept to release. And he never asked his cast or crew to do something that he was unwilling to do himself. You know, the, it, this was physically demanding on everyone involved, but you know, if the, the, Actors are spending four hours uh, on underwater, which was a would have been a long day. Normally, it was like a couple of hours, but they, if they spend four or five hours, he's down there for twelve hours. You know, uh, he was a he's a leader and he's leading by example. And and some of his leading techniques might be frowned upon, but uh, nobody could ever accuse him of of not being in the trenches with his soldiers, so to speak. You know what I mean? Like yeah, he is down sure. there leading and he is the, he is the first one to get in. And the, the, you know, Michael Bean even tell stories like, Hey, I've, I'm, you know, I've been there all day and I get out and I, you know, get dressed and I'm leaving and Jim's still underwater. <laughs> you know, he's still, he's hanging there under, he's hanging there decompressing and watching dailies and talking on the phone to the studio. And, you know, he's still working and he's, he's on set for 18 hours a day. Jeez. You know, it's, it's, it's wild, but I mean, so, you know, we can't, I, we weren't, we weren't there on set, so we don't know. Uh, but we, you know, if he, I don't, I don't think he was ever abusive to anyone from the, the stories. Don't make it sound like he was. It sounds like he was just very demanding of his, of his uh, employees, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we obviously wouldn't condone any, any kind of actual abuse, but it doesn't sound to me like he was, I mean, and, and I'm not saying James Cameron's the same. James Cameron has some, you know, He's 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 had some difficulties in his life with you know being being a dick being you know and, and he's 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 gone through five wives for a reason. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think I think there's a there's a confidence at play and a, a very like focused mm-hmm. attitude. I mean, you you meet some people like uh, you know I I'm not I'm not trying to name drop, but just to just to throw it out there, there are some people that are on a different level. Like when you talk to a guy like. Uh, uh, in my, my other job, I, I deal with, uh, Mr. Corgan, Billy Corgan, and, uh, and he has a reputation sometimes for being a dick. I have found that guy 
to be nothing but like the coolest fucking guy in the world to be around. There is a way that he talks sometimes that just he's very sure of himself and he's he's just he knows what he wants. Well, and he and, does not want to go a different direction. And He'll ask someone you for your opinion if he wants it. And, mm-hmm. and that otherwise don't bother because he'll just tell you to stop. And Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's the job of someone who's, who's leading like, you know, an organization like Billy Corgan is, or who is directing a multi-million dollar movie. Like, yeah, yeah I mean, some, some directors are, are, and, and filmmaking is a collaborative process from beginning to end anyway, but the director is the guy who like is steering the ship. And he has to be very confident in which direction that ship is going, you know, uh, and James Cameron is very confident in his abilities and he's proven, I think that he deserves to be, I mean, he is the smartest guy in the room. <laughs> he is always the smartest guy in the room. It seems like, you know, I'd like to get him and him and Cronenberg in a room together and see what they, <laughs> it would be, it would be interesting. Yeah. Um, but, and I said that because I even have another, uh, I, I keep reading these quotes, but again, like you said, it, there's so much out there with him and he talks a lot about yeah. this stuff so it's fun to read but in a totally separate interview talking about like how people misinterpret the movie or expect something and don't get it or whatever uh another interviewer had asked him that and he said here he said quote uh, it, it sounds like a totally different tone than the last part he says is it my fault that audiences don't grasp the fact that these creatures have to be protected from our violently human negative influences coffee michael bean is the monster of the piece but people still manage to get the last 15 minutes and be amazed it has an uplifting ending i find this incredible because all manifestations of the aliens are benign when the mothership comes up from behind the cliff and mary elizabeth master master antonio touches it the music her expression the production design we're saying something that should be very clear when the NTI send the pseudopod water tentacle as a probe to the rig, it communicates with the crew. It's quite equivocal. It's meant to be wondrous because the crew's reaction is to laugh and smile. The thing is attempting positive communication. How do audiences keep propelling themselves beyond that to a point where they think the creatures are threatening? The yeah. movie defines itself well before this. The sense of disappointment some people have when the aliens turn out to be nice, I think, says a lot about the audiences for movies. The signals sent out from the beginning are the ones of benevolence. I can understand the misinterpretation of maybe the initial contact with the USS Montana submarine, as it isn't clear it hits the turbulent wake of the mothership. But I'm at a loss trying to understand why other people don't understand this. Yeah, he's absolutely right. I mean, their first contact with the water tentacle is completely benign. Like, why would they, you know, they're they're clearly just trying to communicate and uh, I don't understand why people think that, that later on in the movie, all of a sudden they're going to be evil or something, you know, uh, it's really, it, it really is. He, he put that very well, I think. And it he puts is it really... well, and, but there, and, he, and it's, it's not like mean or anything, but it is with a very much, it felt like to me a very much a tone of like, what the fuck? I guys? did my part. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't exactly. know why you can't get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, despite the fact that this was not as successful as most of Cameron's other films, although, you know, like I said, it wasn't a flop. Uh, the movie still pushed the art of blockbuster filmmaking forward in ways that many films do not. I mean, we mentioned all of the um, the literal filmmaking techniques that and equipment that were invented just for this movie. And the the almost like incredible leap forward that CGI took with this movie, just with that one scene. And, and looking at it now, that scene is a little dated, 
but it still looks pretty good for a movie that is, you know, what, what are we at? 35 years old at this point, almost yeah. uh, 30, 33 years old. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it still looks pretty good, you know? Uh, and of, of course it led to further advances in CGI. And I mean, he really pushes the boundaries of it in Terminator two, but, you know, even though we've talked a, a lot about, you know, in the last couple of hours about the, the kind of harrowing filming of the abyss, all the stories, because it's uh, it's one of the most infamously difficult movie shoots of all time. It's up there with Jaws and like Apocalypse Now. It's like when people talk about difficult movie shoots, they talk about Apocalypse Now, Jaws and the abyss, you know, because on all of those people almost die. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but because it, it is an insane story. So that's why I mean, that's why we told the story here, you know, because it is a it is a very interesting, crazy story to tell. Uh, but I think that because there were so many of those stories coming out at the time of its release, that the final product didn't get the attention that it deserved as just a film. And part of that's from expectations, like Gary was saying. Uh, but this is sort of, I mean, some of the some of the reviewers said this is a negative thing, but this is sort of Cameron's answer to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You know, it's a big hearted sci-fi movie about the first contact between humanity and an alien species who at first their motivations are unclear, but they end up, end up being fairly benign. And I, and I am also like, I, I mentioned this on Aliens too, but I'm torn on which cut of the film is better. Uh, I do think the shorter version is more focused and I think it's paced better. But the thematic heart of the film is weakened in that original cut. You know, uh, I even found a quote from Cameron himself where he says, I like the wave version. I like the idea that we are judged and found wanting by rational godlike aliens, but then saved by one good man. As a mob, we're a lost cause. As individuals, there is hope. Which, yeah, I mean, it, it, that's a great quote. And, he, and he's right. And it's a, yeah, the ending's a little cheesy <laughs> of the, of both versions, honestly, but especially the, the wave version, it's a little cheesy, but I do think it's the better version of the film overall, even though I don't think it's paced as well as the theatrical cut. Uh, I think the, I think I prefer the wave version too. Uh, yeah, now, I, I'm in that camp as well. Yeah. I was about to ask you, since this was your first time seeing it as well, um, which one you prefer to so you also prefer yeah. the wave version yeah i do i i think it you know sort of i mean because they do mention it in dialogue the i well i mean it's a theory they don't know it for a fact but they mentioned that well they can control water and i mean the tentacle is clear you know clear evidence of that right but i don't think you know all these people who are saying you know that they don't get cameron's films like he makes it pretty clear. Like I, you know, there's been things that I have not understood in watching a particular film. I won't get into examples because I'll just catch a bunch of shit for it. But um, <laughs> we need to explain the matrix to you again. N- n- <laughs> <laughs> but there's, uh, but you know, his, his, me- you know, it's pretty clear and it's very clear in the, uh, in the special edition. And I oh think- yeah. It's, it's, he is not, he is not subtle about what he's trying no, to say no. at all. And, and again, <laughs> it's not this huge heady concept. It's like, yeah. Hey, we're, we're this outside party. You guys should be nicer to each other. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. If, yeah. if I had any criticism of that, I almost had like an eye roll moment a little bit when it kept showing the war scenes, like they're flashing it up on their TV. And I was just kind of like, okay, like, yeah, 
we get it. Like, we get it. We're, yeah, like I said, each other up. nobody nobody <laughs> could ever accuse James Cameron of being a subtle filmmaker in any, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> any, any way, shape, or form. You know? I, I thought it was funny in that quote you just gave too. It's just like he talks about the individual a little bit there because in another one I had uh, just on the side, he, he said, uh, uh, I wanted to make the abyss because I was interested in a cold, dark, threatening, and very sterile environment. How, as human beings, we are pushing our mental and physical limitations to adapt to that environment. We are using technology to push ourselves further into ever more hostile environments, including outer space. But the more we rely on technology, the more we have to, re- the more we have to rely on each other and our basic capacities as humans to bond emotionally in friendship or in love. These factors keep us from destroying each other and allow us to survive in situations we wouldn't have a hope in otherwise. Yeah. I liked that too, which is talking about, he, he was interested in the, you know, just the, just the idea. He was also interested in humans coming together. Like how, yeah. I mean, the, the abyss is above all, it, it is a love story. I mean, it really is. I mean, uh, especially between Bud and Lindsay. Um, I, I mentioned the resuscitation scene earlier, uh, that entire like 10 minutes surrounding that scene that I, I talked about earlier where she drowns and then, the, you know, then he, she, she basically has to sacrifice herself and then he has to bring her back. But there's also, you know, the scene later on that kind of mirrors that thematically where Bud makes the decision to essentially sacrifice himself when he has to go disarm the nuke and he has to descend into the abyss. And at this point, he's unable to speak. Uh, you know, because she was uh, she was dead technically, so she was not able to speak. And it's it's him, her, his voice bringing her back basically. And in the scene where he's going down the abyss, she's having to talk to him, and it's kind of almost a one way conversation, uh, other than him being able to type a little bit. Uh, but she's having to kind of keep him lucid enough to disarm the nuke. But then he runs out of oxygen, and it's his turn to die. I think that she even says after she comes back, she's like, next time it's your turn or something like that. Uh, yeah. But that time it is his ter- turn. Like he, he yeah. decides I, you know, there's no way I'm getting back up. I've, I've done my duty and I, it's time to die. And he kind of accepts it and they say their goodbyes, but then he is sort of re reborn. Like she was when the NTIs come and rescue him they bring you know you see the little creepy hand come out and and grab him and they bring him into their vessel which is a scene that i love also the way the water kind of separates i think yeah really rad i've always yeah it's pretty cool um (laughs) (laughs) it looks really cool but he like you know he's watching the ntis as they show him and this is in the you know in the uh, the special edition version i guess uh but he's watching as they show him all the bad shit that humanity has done you know, they, and they show him the wave. They show him the news footage of the wave. It's, it seems to be happening in real time. And the wave is sort of paused, you know, uh, ready to wipe out humanity for their sins. But then they, you know, the wave recedes and goes back. And when he asks, he says, you could have done it. Like, why didn't you do it? And their answer comes back up on the screen. They show him the text message that he sent to Lindsay, which was love you wife. That was his goodbye to her. Uh, because to me, what the end of this film is, and yeah, it comes across a little cheesy, but to me, it's like you, you've got the NTIs. They've been down there long enough to know that humanity kind of sucks. <laughs> like they've seen that we're capable of hurting each other. They've seen that we're capable of killing each other. Uh, they've seen all the terrible things that humans are capable of. And in, in that in the movie that's shown in the form of, you know, nuclear Holocaust and the Vietnam war and all these things. But if it were made today, it would probably show like news footage about school shootings, 
you know, yeah, or, right, yeah. you know, as, as I was writing my notes for this episode, like literally as I was writing my notes, the news about the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade came through. And in the last couple of days since that, I mean, we've seen riots, we've seen police brutality, uh, like we've seen some pretty horrible stuff in our real world the last couple of days. And I mean, it is this world undoubtedly like is a, is a terrible place filled with terrible people, <laughs> but the NTIs in the abyss spared us because they saw the potential of the human race to do better and to be better. Uh, and I think that's a pretty uplifting way to, I think that's an, a, a pretty great uplifting ending, you know, there's, and there's nothing wrong with an uplifting ending because they see that, yeah, we have the potential to be cruel and to hurt each other and to kill each other, but they also see the potential of humanity to love each other. And it's that love that makes the NTIs believe that humanity was worth saving in the end. I think he, he like literally at one point says they just need us to grow up a little bit or yeah. something like that. <laughs> so it's just a, it's just like an interesting way of they're They're obviously like, it seems like they're a race that's been around for a very, very long time. Yeah. And they're like, okay, you're still stuck in caveman days. Right. And it's, it's, you need to, it's time yeah. to evolve a little bit. And it, it's really this one man's like sacrifice and he's sacrificing. Yeah. He, they see that he loves his wife, but he's also willing to sacrifice him, his life for all of his friends. And they see that, that, Hey, if this guy can do it, anybody can do it. And they spared the entire human race because they saw the potential in humanity to not be cruel and horrible, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I love, I love that ending. I honestly do. And a lot of people do think it's hokey, but I, I don't think I've said this before on the show. I said it a lot during our Wachowski series, but I don't mind a hokey ending if it emotionally resonates. And I All think it made me think of, things. honestly, it was like uh, the fact that, well, I mean, we're going to go into another one where it's all about like, you're in control of your fate, basically. So yeah. it's, uh, you know, like it's uh, the whole world could end or you could make it better or whatever. So maybe this is just a James Cameron just trying to bring some hope into the universe. You can't hate on yeah. that. Just like not I had to learn to not hate the Wachowskis for Speed Racer. Hey, like you ended up liking just, Speed Racer, if I remember correctly. That's what I'm saying. I was just like, finally, <laughs> like, you know what? I can't hate on something just being so earnest. It's right. nice. <laughs> exactly. exactly. You know, you got to have that in the world. It can't all be like blowing people up. And, right. Uh, so that's that's good. And not it, all the aliens have to be mean. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's a. Uh, I can see the weirdness if you come off Aliens and Terminator and you get to this one. You're like, oh, now there are friends. Okay, thanks, James. Yeah. Hey, James, I mean, Steven Spielberg did it. You know, he, he did yeah. he did Close Encounters and E.T. And then he did World of the Worlds, <laughs> so, you know, yeah. where they're not exactly good guys. I mean, granted, that was two decades later, but still. Yeah, I do like uh, I mean, you know, the, the movie didn't do as well. And maybe it was because of some of that confusion. But like the, uh, you know, he doesn't seem phased. Um, even in some of these interviews I read, he talks about like, you know, he's like, I work with high budgets, so I have a responsibility to my financiers. But he basically says in one interview, he's like, they, he's like, what my job is, is to stick to the script that they thought was commercial enough to back it in the first place. We already <laughs> sold it. He yeah. said, so once that decision's made, they gave me the money. I don't second guess anything. He's like, yeah. I shoot what I think works and I don't worry about how commercial it's going to be anymore. Yeah. And, I mean, uh, and that he's right, though. I mean, that's a that's a really good perspective, I think. Yeah, uh, because he's, yeah, he's, he's like, like I've they, got enough. I think he literally said, I've got enough problems that will come up on set without having to worry about whether the world's going to be ready for this movie in a year. Yeah, and, <laughs> and yeah. So, I like that. Uh, I, yeah, it's uh, I mean, he's so he's he's very confident about that thing. And he and he was like, 
Um, I found one after Terminator 2 where he's talking about, they, they asked him about the abyss again. He said, you know what I found out after making four movies is how hard it is to please anybody. And <laughs> one should not even aspire to that anymore. If you make it. a movie along given guidelines, you get condemned for not being original. If you attempt to throw off conventions and formulas, people say it doesn't fit the party line. He said, reviews for the abyss were evenly divided between positive and negative. I prefer that to them all being mediocre. There were enough people that got the gag. I find that satisfying. Nice. He goes on to say, like, it was successful or it was financial or it made money in America. He was like, it wasn't Batman. He's like, we did okay. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't, it wouldn't be fair to compare any other 1989 film to Batman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, also, also, just you guys might get a kick out of this. I thought this was funny. And one of the interviews from back then, uh, they asked about his next movie after The Abyss. Uh, apparently, there were huge rumors going around that James Cameron would go on after this movie to make Blade Runner 2. Huh. And uh, <laughs> so they asked him straight up about that. Like, are you going to make Blade Runner 2? And this is his quote, which I thought was fun for a few different reasons. He says, I have nothing to do with Blade Runner 2. I wouldn't be interested, and I don't want to go around cleaning up after Ridley Scott for the rest of my life. <laughs> Nor will I sequelize any of my own films. My only plan for the future is to not have too many technical considerations next time. I don't want hardware to break my focus on the actors, which was a great danger on the abyss. Wow. The only concrete plan I have <laughs> is to executive produce my wife's new film, Johnny Utah. And I'm only doing that so I could watch her do all the work and lie back, body checking anybody who interferes. What, what was Point Break originally just called? Johnny I was Utah? about to say, and that movie has got to be because Catherine Bigelow, who he had married at this point, yeah. Yeah. directs Point Break. And the Keanu Reeves plays Johnny Utah. So I think he's talking about Point Break. He wants yeah. to just be there hanging out on the set of Point Break. Well, that's not what happened. And I love that he's, he's not going to clean up after Ridley Scott for the rest yeah. of his life and that he will, nor will I sequelize my own films. Mm, you're going to eat those words there, James. <laughs> <laughs> and now he's literally making five Avatar movies or now as well. <laughs> so, so real quick before we wrap things up, guys, uh, further viewing for for The Abyss. What what you guys got? I think what would you pair with this? Like, I mean, we've talked about Armageddon a few times. Yeah. We've said Armageddon. I think one of the reviews mentioned like Interstellar, which I think would work. Um, yeah. 2001 would be a fun 2001 one. seems like the most obvious one. Yeah. I actually, um, like, I, I actually, by the way, sorry, Todd, I was going to say, you're going to hate this, but another one it made me think of, and I couldn't help it, was Prometheus. And... Uh. <laughs> I felt like Prometheus fit. And I especially thought... Of you you're going to have to explain yourself. <laughs> uh, well no just because it's like these these uh i don't know just they find the alien life and they're like investigating it i don't know just this there, there was something about it that felt the same i think what maybe especially think of it though was the first time they send that little probe thing up and uh uh masteriano or whatever her name is master antonio uh, master antonio <laughs> just call master her Lindsay. antonio <laughs> i mean he can uh, be the first thing she fucking does is she reaches out and touches the fucking thing yeah. and like rubs it. And I watched that and I said, Justin should be tearing that apart as much <laughs> as he tore apart the Prometheus for the side, just touching a fucking alien. Yeah. When well, they first saw it. <laughs> I don't know. They at least she had gloves on. <laughs> uh, 
anyway anyway what do you got todd but something better than prometheus i hope <laughs> i don't know that <laughs> remains to be seen <laughs> no i was actually going to go with uh, 1997 uh contact directed by robert zemeckis uh it yeah. kind of has that it, it, it's a blue co- i feel like it's a blue collar approach to this very uh interesting concept it's a little more heady i think than, a little <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's a little more heady than uh than the abyss but i just i kind of I, I mean the dynamic between mcconaughey and jodie foster uh, mcconaughey and anybody really but um i just think it kind of hits a lot of the same notes um and you know pretty much everything minus the water yeah um but yeah that's that's that would be my twofer yeah um uh uh, contact was actually on my list as well Uh, that was one that i thought of because i i agree i think it's pretty similar only the the difference being that jodie foster's character is actively looking for um aliens for years instead of just coming across them but it does have that sort of same awe inspired you know contact with yeah. them uh, yeah. it's it's and and it's a really good movie it's a lot slower and it's a lot more like you said a lot more heady i mean it's based on a book by carl sagan so yeah. you know so it's <laughs> it's pretty heavy on the science part of it um but so that's one i thought of and the other one i actually mentioned it earlier in the uh in the episode is uh it's not a particularly great movie but i think sphere is pretty similar i mean sphere is not a bad movie nice. uh i don't think i've seen it since it came out in theaters uh the uh, based on a michael crichton novel and i i remember when it came out being very excited because i'm such a big i was a big michael crichton fan when i was a kid and uh then you know it, and it didn't quite live up to that but it you know it, it's another great underwater adventure um and i don't have you guys seen you guys ever seen sphere it's been i don't years. remember anything it's been a long long time yeah so it's it's um pretty similar in concept is this where you know you've got a, a group of scientists living underwater or re- doing their research underwater and then uh they they come into contact with you know uh, an alien force sort of uh nice. it's, it's you know it's, it's worth checking out i think if you've never seen it so that that would be my pick and uh, the other ones that i had listed were contact and 2001 a space odyssey <laughs> you know so yeah uh, we're kind of all on the same page here uh, but next week we're moving on, or next next episode, I should say, we're moving on uh, for to, to watch James Cameron eat those words that he <laughs> spoke in those interviews, because uh, <laughs> somehow, some way between the the couple of years after uh, after the abyss, he was convinced to do Terminator Two, uh, probably with a large uh, sack with a big money sign on it if i were to guess (laughs) and once again he's going to end he's going to innovate and he's going to make more money than anyone could imagine (laughs) so for anybody wondering uh, yes my testicles do have a tattoo of a dollar sign on them (laughs) (laughs) uh so that's where we're at for our next episode we're talking about terminator 2 what's that 1991 1992 something like that i can't it was 92 Exposure to James Cameron, my first exposure to the Terminator. Uh, so I'm very, very excited. Not my first exposure to uh, Schwarzenegger, though. I don't know what that was. Maybe Kindergarten Cop. Was that before Terminator? I don't remember. <laughs> IMDb list Terminator 2 is 91, just to be 91. Oh, it is okay. 91. Okay. All right. Yeah. So uh, another great movie, an- another one with multiple endings. If that, um, if that stopped anybody from multiple. finding it, because you're <laughs> yeah, like, thanks. Oh, fuck, where? Oh, I've looked all over <laughs> all movies from 1992. Yeah. Or they just looked at 
Shocking Dark, which was one of my further viewings for the first Terminator, which is also called Terminator 2, oh, uh, yeah. which is you guys still got to watch it. It's amazing. But that's all I got for this week, guys. We're going to move on to our next uh, the next part of James Cameron's story on what is sure to be another uh, epic episode, because all of these seem to be because uh, the stories behind his films are just fascinating. Honestly, they really are. And like I said, they're very well documented. So we've got a lot of resources on these. So thank you guys for sticking through these longer episodes. We hope that you're uh, hope that you're digging them. Yeah. James Cameron goes all in on everything he does. So he sure it, uh, does. Definitely leads lends to some stories and a lot yeah, I'm of watching discussion. His underwater documentaries on uh, as a side project right now. And yeah, the guy is dedicated <laughs> to everything he does. Like he is all in. He doesn't half-ass anything. Whole asses everything. <laughs> it's weird. But all right. <laughs> uh, anyway, where can you guys be found on the internet for our listeners? I'm at this is Gary Horn on all the social medias. And if you enjoyed my Star Trek silliness and want to hear more, head over to my show, The Computer Resume Podcast, where we're covering the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order with a rotating panel of fascinating friends and interesting individuals. Available now wherever you get your podcasts on all the socials at Computer Resume. And you can find me at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and D&D Beyond. I am at Justin underscore Bishop. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, all that stuff. Um, I am, I am working on a list on letterbox, by the way, of all of our, um, all of our further viewing picks. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. Our, one of our listeners, Kurt Manchester, uh, loyal listener for a long time. He, uh, he said, heard me say on, I think on back on one of the Cronenberg episodes, I mentioned that, man, I wish we had just kept a list on letterbox of all these. Uh, and he took it upon himself to make that happen. So, uh, so oh, thanks, Kurt. Yeah. So now uh, he, he made a, a little Google Doc and sent it to me. So now I'm working on turning that into a letterbox list because I was not willing to go back and listen to all of our old episodes, but uh, he was. So well, thanks, Kurt. That's uh, awesome. Thanks, Kurt. It's pretty cool. That's so we'll, awesome. hopefully by the time this episode's out, I'll have that finished and it'll be up there on my letterbox as well. Uh, you can find the show at cinemashock.net the newly redesigned cinemashock.net find all of our episodes and all uh, links to our merchandise uh, over on Threadless. links to our discord server where you can come chat with us. Uh, mostly me. Cause Todd doesn't go, doesn't do anything in there. And uh, <laughs> Gary pops in with a meme every now and then. And that's mostly it. That's true. <laughs> but, or there always applies to a conversation two days too late. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they're always entertaining <laughs> memes. Uh, but we've got a lot of other like friends of the show and listeners and stuff who pop in there, so it's a lot of fun. Uh, we're also at cinema under, under cinema underscore shock on Twitter and Instagram, and find us on Facebook and YouTube, where I think all of our episodes are up now. Is that right, Gary? They are all right? there and all the trailers. Yeah, except for Shogun Assassin, apparently. Yeah, Shogun Assassin. It it docked me every fucking time I tried to (laughs) upload that trailer. Yeah, but no. But yeah, a lot of fun stuff. Like, uh, did you get Xenogenesis up there? James Cameron Xenogenesis. Oh no, I need to do that. I need to. I do. I have a. I have a Curse of the Fly. I haven't. I haven't. I haven't posted it yet, but it's it's waiting. It's in the drafts. Yeah, we got a lot of fun. uh, You know supplemental material on there. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to start so cinematic things related to stuff we talk about or yeah. just weird cinematic things. I think I just say I say we just go for it. Yeah, why not? Subscribe it's to fun. the YouTube. It's going to be fun. It'll be a fun it's, one to subscribe to. It's going nice. to be fun. We get enough subscribers. Maybe we'll start doing some live streams over there or something every now and then. Ah. You know, so that'll be fun. Gary's got a lot of experience with that with the NWA, you know, so 
In fact, uh, I think we need to sign off because Gary's got one in about 10 minutes. It is true. (laughs) So uh, until next time, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather. Be excellent to each other. Just like the aliens said in this movie, just be excellent to each other. Correct. That's a good point. I know how alone you feel. Alone and all that cold blackness. But I'm there in the dark with you. Bud, you're not alone. Remember that time you were, you were pretty drunk. You probably don't remember, but the power went out in that little apartment we had on Johnny street. We were staring at that one little key. And I, I said something really dumb. Like that key was me. And like every one of us is out there alone in the dark in this life. And you just, you just, you took out another key and you put it beside mine and said, no, see, that's me. That's me. We stared at the two keys and then, well, if you remember it, any of this, I'm sure you remember the next part, but there are two keys in the dark. I'm with you. I'll always be with you, bud. I promise that. Scene. I, Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to take a moment to appreciate that. That was best one yet best one yet thank you thank you it's the performance that sold it it was